VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, June the 30th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, David Williams. He's producing this. Come on with an edition of Open Line. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So for most, heading into a long weekend, of course, get the Canada Day stat on Monday. Well, at least we do, and hopefully you'll have yourself a fun weekend. But of course... Importantly in this province, also Memorial Day celebrations or ceremonies taking place. Tomorrow, a variety of activities planned. Please do indeed, if you have the time, to attend and pay your respect. Of course, the province's course changed that fateful day at Beaumont Hamill. Anyway, so uh, one more. Congratulations uh, once again to a local named Stephen Clark, who petitioned Apple to include Memorial Day on their Apple calendar. So when you open your phone now and you see the little dot under July the 1st, Last time around, it was you click it, it was Canada Day. Now, in addition to Canada Day, it says Memorial Day in this province. So, bravo, Stephen. That's a great effort and, I think, a meaningful one. All right, so the Capelin are rolling down in Middle Cove, apparently, and the whales are in. The food fishery kicks in tomorrow. There's always going to be the same questions unless DFO comes clean with absolute firm details about what the limits are. We're always saying it's, three, it's five fish per person, 15 per boat. If you're out with five, here's the trick and the rub and the gray area. So if five go out in a vessel that's worthy of having five people bo- aboard, if you come in with five each, DFO says there's no fine going to be coming your way. But they also go on to say that it'll be up to the purview of the enforcement officer that you encounter. So which is it? You know, people need to know. And especially when the issue with paying for groceries is so dear, you're going to see more people on the water for the recreational food fishery this year, I would suggest. So it's always helpful to have a bit more info there. And certainly one of the faves over the weekend, certainly one of mine, is to have a little backyard or a campfire. But given what we've seen, let's please do indeed be very mindful and careful with your fire. And then it'll be the games of choice. I don't know, remember it was not that long ago here in the city of St. John's, we had a national cornhole championships. Pretty popular game. So whether it's uh, horseshoes for you or washers or what have you. And also just want to make a quick mention uh, of a call we had yesterday, a conversation with the General Secretary of the Canadian National Darts Federation. Joanne Walsh from this province is the women's national champion. She'll be representing Team Canada along with Kieran Taylor and Sandra Squires at the upcoming world. So congratulations to Joanne and the other two members of Team Canada. Also, a very quick one. It looks like now after the Canadian Women's Hockey League Went by the wayside in 2019 after 12 years in operation. Now it looks like we're going to see North American women's pro hockey coming back. And there's some pretty significant money behind it. A guy named Mark Mark Walter, he's the co-owner of the Los Angeles Dodgers, put in a bid alongside with Billie Jean King Enterprises. They've got a signed letter of intent from Professional Women's Hockey Players Association. They've got a, a collective bargaining agreed upon. Now, just, you know, juxtapose the salaries for reasons that people will understand. So the minimum salary for players in this new league, which is said to hit the ice in January, $35,000 American. Now, for some players who already have a pro contract on the books, they've got two seasons for 150000 so it remains to be seen how that will be adjudicated. But it looks like North American women's pro hockey coming back January of 24. All right, cool. All right, what do we got here? Oh, thinking about, you know, the songs of summer and summer activities, summer cars. This date in history, the first Corvette rolled off the Chevrolet assembly line in Flint, Michigan. Of course, the stylish Stingrays, and there's lots of them around, and it was on this date in 19... 19- 
53. Okay, more serious issues. The, for the second time, there's been a raid at someone's home where they've confiscated, the RNC and the RCMP have confiscated a significant number of weapons. We see, we hear from the Crown Prosecutor's Office, and the stats are quite clear, there's more guns on the street than ever before. The most serious part of this, or the scariest part anyway, is the number of ghost guns. So you can simply print a gun with a 3D printer, it's cheap, and it's, most importantly, it's untraceable. So in this particular seizure, there was 33 handguns, one prohibited firearm, a restricted loaded firearm, 27 3D printed firearms, one was 100% complete and ready to be fired. The RCMP also go on to say that these guns were headed for sale for the streets, and that will, of course, be part of the investigation about maybe who was in conversation with these two criminals uh, about the not only the 3D guns, but 33 handguns on top of that. But you wonder about penalties, right? One of the people arrested had a lifelong ban imposed based on charges in the past about not having a firearm. And, of course, he couldn't care less because he's making guns for sale. When the penalties are applied for, whether it be long guns or handguns or what have you, I wonder if it's a time to kept, catch up with the technology, given the untraceable feature of a ghost gun, for that to have an additional layer of severity when it comes to punishment. But that's, you know, we see the numbers of guns that are kicking around and the numbers of shootings that have been reported. So, anyway, ghost guns, scary, scary stuff. All right. And then this is an interesting story. There's a break in a 22-year-old case for a head that was found, and <laughs> interesting specific detail offered in the story, stuffed in the Billy Boot shopping bag buried in a dump site out of Conception Bay. So the remains were discovered in 2001. Now by using genetic genealogy, DNA, doing family tree research, they've identified a woman in the United States who uploaded her DNA profile to establish the fact that she is what we've been calling Conception Bay John Doe, a third cousin. So the great-grandparents and great-grandparents would have been siblings. So they actually have deduced that the person had shoulder-length black curly hair, was of Cuban descent, likely lived in the United States for some undetermined amount of time, was killed in this province somewhere between 1994 and 1997. So it's fascinating what they're able to do with whether it be social media campaigns, media conferences, isotope analysis, this gene genetic genealogy. So they've got some understanding they think of who this person might be. They're looking for uh, tips from the public and they're offering a 50000 reward for information leading to the man's identification. $50,000 and you know full well like every other crime that's ever been committed out there for the most part. Somebody knows something. Anyway, let's get this one going because this one is really, you know, someone asked me to talk about this a couple of days ago even though we do try to keep this kind of stuff front of the front burner and maybe with the summertime more time allowed for young folk to be on their screens and we know the evils that lurk around each digital corner. This story is infuriating. Everybody remembers the story of Amanda Todd. She took her own life in 2012. This was after being uh, persistently extorted by this guy. He was a Dutch uh, person named Aidan Coben. So she posted a video seen by millions where she used flashcards to talk about the fact that he, this man had intimidated her, threatened her, and made her post intimate images, and then consequently she killed herself. This fellow was never charged with his role in that particular death. He was serving a sentence in his home country, for some 11 years, which, which is up soon. He was extradited to Canada to face a bunch of charges here. Uh, communication with a young person who committed sexual offense, possession, distribution of child pornography, extortion, harassment. Got an additional 13-year sentence. 
So I guess the story is important. I don't need to talk about the implications here, but we know this is happening, and it's happening just far too frequently. And it happens and maybe starts very innocently and very quickly escalates to the point where the sextortion, extortion and demanding intimate uh, pictures, nudes. So now the really unfortunate part of this story goes on to say that after he serves his sentence back in his home country, the Dutch national will now face a reduction in his uh, 13-year sentence as was offered by a Canadian court. The reduction of some four and a half years. Does sound to me like the Dutch are a bit soft on this extremely serious issue. This man not only had a direct role in the man of Todd's death, but he had been convicted for doing this similar thing to some 30 other women. So the whole concept of sextortion, I know it's unsettling, but it's also important to consider. And Doug Snellgrove appealing to the Supreme Court of Canada. Sentenced to four years after his third trial. This is his last option. There's lots of applications in front of the Supreme Court each year to, be, to have cases heard. I don't know if I should say this part out loud, but let's hope that his isn't. Anyway, if you want to talk about it, let's go. All right, yesterday, timing is always, it's not coincidental. Timing is very personal. Uh, uh, timing is very predictable and purposeful when certain industries or organizations or crown corporations make certain announcements. So here we are with the implications of carbon tax, clean fuel regulations, and others tomorrow on the 1st of July. So Hydro goes on to post their financials for 2022 and 2023, or pardon me, the first quarter of 23, talking about $500 million in, in profit. So that's way up over $500 million from 2021, predominantly non-cash, which is important to add to this conversation. So it's always good when the Crown Corp posts uh, some profits here. But an important part of what Jennifer Williams said yesterday, the CEO of Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, 91.5% of electricity generated in the province was from net zero energy sources. So we are doing our part. There's an uptick in the numbers of people using the uh, uh, fast charging stations for their electric vehicles, what have you. But if we are using energy uh, that's generated 91.5% of it from net zero energy sources, this province is in good stead. That said, the conversation's been happening a lot, and certainly up to the 11th hour. Now we're hearing more from Premier Fury, more from Minister Cody, more from Minister Parsons about what the implications will be here. And you know what they are. Gasoline in particular, an additional three cents plus HST, so from 11 to 14 plus HST. But the whopping big concern is the gray area around uh, clean fuel regulations. Now the impact of that is largely unknown. It was first introduced back in 2016. It's moseyed its way through Parliament, and here it comes. Even though what they tell us, with no firm details, is that we won't see much of an implication at the pumps until 2025 on that one, but years down the road will be significant impact. The Parliamentary Budget Office has some additional 17 cents per litre by 2030 if the clean fuel regulation is imposed in full. The massive problem here, and you can talk about the fact there's a rebate in play, I understand. But... It won't be tomorrow, but it will be on the 6th of July when the PUB does their standard update of the prices, 17 additional cents per litre of home heating oils. That's where the problem kicks in. It was long exempt in the provincial carbon tax scheme, but with the federal backstop, there will indeed be that additional carbon tax on home heating fuels. Some 40,000 homes in the province do heat their home with oil. So, again, in the purposeful timing, there was an announcement yesterday of some $157 million dollars to encourage or to incentivize or to assist homes to move from oil to electricity. Simply called the Oil to Electric Incentive Program. Whether it be with mini splits or multiple mini splits, central heat pumps, 
electric boilers, electric furnaces, there's a floating target where you can get up to $17,000 in assistance. So it all depends on how, what kind of move you are making away from oil to see whether or not you can max out at $17,000. So we can talk about some of the various eligibility issues, what have you. The key feature of this one, and I do have a question as to whether or not it's stackable with other programs that have already been put in place. So this one also offers some cost coverage for the removal of your oil tank. It does in include some monies for the installation of electric, electric panel upgrades. And I think most notably, with the past programs, you still needed to have some money to undertake this initiative and then get a rebate at the end. Under this one, the installers can send an invoice directly to Newfoundland Power or to Newfoundland Labrador Hydro. So that does indeed cure some of the ills, but it doesn't mean everyone's going to make a swift move here. And when like, these government programs come to play, there will, for those who are interested, a very quick move to try to take advantage of the money. And the whole pot is $157 million. So still doesn't negate the concern that people will have with home heating. Let's say, if you just don't happen to take care of it, you know, I think there's been a long question about how HST is applied, whether it be on a price of gas or diesel, and whether or not, with the necessity, in a northern country like Canada, and in this province, where there are persistent windy and cold winters, whether or not there should be HST applied to home heating fuels anyway. We can talk about carbon tax implications and clean fuel regulations, but HST on home heating fuels has long been considered as something that we should be talking about, and if you want to take it on here today, we can do exactly that. All right, where's this story that I'm trying to get to here now? So there's a piece of legislation that has been passed, but it has not been enacted until the end of the year. It is called Bill C-18. It's the Online News Act. All right, so Canadian Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez, on the heels of Google saying they are no longer going to post Canadian news outlets on their search bar, search engine. So apparently Minister Rodriguez was caught off guard and was surprised. How can that possibly be? The pretty much an identical affair took place in Australia. And Google played this public posturing game. And fair enough, people say, how can the government be dictating to private sector companies like Google and Meta, Facebook, Instagram, and what have you? But here's the reality. Canadian news media outlets are suffering. Even when the uh, federal government introduced that so-called media bailout fund, I knew why they were doing it, but I knew it was going to be some form of a mistake, given the fact that the nonsensical rally cry of fake news was really latching on to so many people's uh, will and want to comment, uh, comment on news stories based on the outlet. So it just made things worse. Yes, it might have kept some doors open, which is important. I'm in the media game. I don't think we get any money. As far as I know, we don't. So... This one is kind of silly. If the minister is being honest by saying he's surprised, then he's simply not paying attention. In Australia, they were able to continue to broker a deal with Google. Now their media outlets are thriving. There is some money being paid by the Googles of the world back to the sources of their news stories. So yes, if you go on Google to talk about $157 million from Oil to Electric, it will bring you links, whether it be to VOCM or to CBC or to whoever else. So there is some traffic flows your way. But... I mean, in one breath, people are talking about the worries of consolidating news and the need, like, who's going to cover your town council meeting if it's not for a small media outlet? Because I guarantee you there won't be a representative of Google who's traipsing through your community to put your home on Google Maps. They're not going to cover your council meeting. They're not going to cover some of the, what might be considered the mundane issues that are important to Canadians. In addition to that, 
The negotiations apparently aren't even over with Google, so there's a, an air or a stench of public posturing here. But the government just doesn't seem to have their ear to the ground on things like this. So add in, you know, some of the confusion and the sidesteps, missteps, mistakes by Public Safety Minister Marco Mendocino. Like, what is actually going on here? That's not to let the Googles of the world off the hook. Just consider it. They do indeed thrive on the backs of hard work by tons of other organizations, media and otherwise. Their net profit last year, $60 billion. So hopefully we can figure out a way where content generated here and with our other media colleagues at Saltwire, CBC, Rec House, whoever, NTV, will be included in the searches on Google or and or on Facebook or what have you. But for them to pretend that a few shekels coming the other way shouldn't be required is ridiculous. Now, the Canadian press had a relationship with some 15 or 16 outlets to pay for content that they would share on their wire. So, again, the legislation is probably not what it needs to be to ensure that there's a realistic compromise reached at the end of the day. But for the love of who, you know who, please tell me, Minister Rodriguez, that you're being disingenuous when you say that you were caught off guard and surprised because there's really not much to be surprised with. All right, a couple of very quick ones before we get back. Sad news in the loss of Bill Marshall, William Bill Marshall, 16-year veteran of the House of Assembly, former Justice of the Appeal Court. He died on Wednesday. He was a Tory MHA from 70 to 86, several senior cabinet posts with the uh, Moores and Peckford governments. He was the Minister of Energy at one point, played a role in drafting the Atlantic Accord, one of the most important documents representing the province. He was on the uh, Court of Appeal in 86, served on the bench in 2003. I had the pleasure of meeting Mr. Marshall on several occasions, and it is a sad loss, our condolences to his family and friends. And not to give short shrift, but I want to get through a couple here. Another, I think, sad loss. Once again, I had the distinct pleasure of meeting this woman and interviewing her down on Middle Cove Beach with Chrissy Holmes back in the Out of the Fog days. And that's Sue Johansson. Sex with Sue. Dead at the age of 93. She was a nurse. She opened a birth control clinic at a Toronto high school, ran it for almost a couple of decades. People know her basically because of her uh, Canadian call-in radio and then television program, the Sunday Night Sex Show. And then the Americans spun it off with Talk Sex with Sue Johansson. She was matter-of-fact and honest, and unwavering. And when that conversation is so taboo, and it remains taboo in some corners to this very day, I would think the way that Sue Johansson talked about sex, because we're sexual beings, and there's nothing to be embarrassed about, that she probably helped a lot of people have be more aware of respect, self-respect, sex, how it works, and some of the worries or uh, pitfalls or serious mistakes people can make. So Sue Johansson, who was a lovely lady, I have to say, uh, dead at the age of 93. And very quickly before we get to the news, well-known provincial songwriter, Wince Coles, has also passed away. He has a pretty eclectic song book as a prolific songwriter. So whether it be songs like By the Glow of the Kerosene Light, or notably leading into the Can uh, Canada Day, Memorial Day long weekend, many people will be heading up to the cabin. Let's take a break. Our condolences to all involved, his family and friends, of course, to Mr. Coles. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Roomy bills are not paid and me mortgage is due. Spent 200 bucks on grub and booze. I'll wait till next month to get tires for me car. Monday morning on the job again. A whole lot poured and when we came in. Can't wait till Friday after work and then. Back to the cabin 
Oh, nobody said everyone's glad to see somebody dropping by. Have a beer, have a drink, have a piece of the Mrs. Blueberry Pie. They're eating things they wouldn't eat before. Sitting at the table or on the floor, cause anything goes when you walk through the door. Up at the cabin. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin on the top of the board on line number one. Good morning, John Ottenheimer. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. How about you, John? I'm doing great, thanks. And uh, thanks for allowing me a few moments to speak with you, Patty. And uh, you mentioned this gentleman in your preamble. I'd like to speak very briefly about the loss of a giant, uh, in my opinion, yesterday, and that's uh, the late Bill Marshall. Uh, I had the pleasure of knowing um, Bill Marshall for many years. In fact, uh, his family and our family were very close. He and my late brother, Jerry, Jerry Ottenheimer, were the best of friends. They were the closest of friends. And, of course, they worked together for many years in the in the House of Assembly. Um, Patty, Bill Marshall, in my view, was fierce in his beliefs. And uh, I, I speak in two capacities, I guess. One, uh, in opposition. He fiercely opposed the liberal government of the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, the Smallwood government at that time, and uh, in government in the eight, in the 70s and 80s as a cabinet minister under both uh, Premiers uh, Moores and, and Peckford, he was a fierce fighter for our province, for our province of Newfoundland and Labrador. And you mentioned in your preamble uh, the role that uh, Bill Marshall played uh, in the uh, formation of the Atlantic Accord which is perhaps the most important foundation document uh, that we have uh, historically and remnants of which that we still have today. Uh, Bill, I can see a picture now on, on his wall at his home, a picture of uh, Bill Marshall, who was the Minister of Energy when the document was signed, the Premier of the day, uh, Brian Peckford, the Prime Minister of the day, Brian Mulroney, and Pat Kearney. She was the, she was the Federal uh, Energy Minister uh, at that time. Uh, uh, Bill Marshall was a, was a leader in all respects, and as I say, I had the pleasure of, of knowing him on a personal basis. It's a huge loss, and of course, again, as you referred in your preamble, uh, he was an, you know a very influential judge. He was a, a judge of our uh, appellate court for many years, and uh, he was a powerhouse in, in that field as well. And I thought it was important just to speak briefly about Bill Marshall. He is a huge loss. He was a great son of Newfoundland and Labrador. And uh, I would simply describe him in just a couple of ways, if I may. Uh, in my view, he was a man of conviction. He was a man of uh, per persuasion. He was also a man of faith, uh, Patty. He was very involved in the central Newfoundland Anglican Synod for years, if not decades. And in my view, and I think this view will be shared by many who worked with him and knew him both in politics and in law, he was a man of steel. And uh, I simply want to send out my condolences to his, to his wife, Joan, to uh, his daughters, uh, Valerie, one of them, Valerie herself is a uh, Supreme Court judge, mm -hmm. uh, Beth and, uh, and their son, Tim. And uh, I simply wanted to share with your, your audience, many, many in your audience, your, your older listeners, of course, would remember Bill well. Your, your younger uh, um, audience members may not. And that's why I thought it was important to call. 
and uh, Patty, I truly appreciate this opportunity, and I want to thank you. I, I'm glad you did call. He was certainly no wallflower. I'm not exactly sure which Atlantic Record photograph you might be looking at, but another couple of gentlemen who were involved, whether it be Des Sullivan and notably Cabot Martin, who we've also lost in the recent past, who were active and influential members of that, that particular, I'll call it a fight and a victory for the province. And so I echo your comments and your condolences to his family and his friends. Uh, very quickly, you mentioned your brother, Jerry. Did Jerry live on Smithville Crescent? No, actually, Bill Marshall did. Yeah, because uh, I know Marshall did. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, Jerry lived most of his life in the West End of St. John's. Okay, yeah, because we lived there for a while, so I, I knew Mr. Marshall lived there. Yeah. Uh, John, I really appreciate you making time, and I'm sure your words will be well-received by people who knew him and people who respected him, as obviously you did, and I appreciate your time. Patty, I, I appreciate it, and, and enjoy your long weekend. Thanks, Patty. The same to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bill Marshall, dead at 87. Obviously an influential man. Sad loss. Let's go to line number two. Amir, you're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. How are you? I'm doing okay. How about you this morning, Amir? Yeah, good, Paddy. Uh, Paddy, I want to uh, I want to mention about the construction on Southland Boulevard. Uh, I hope I hope somebody's uh, authorities or somebody's listening. Uh, I I know sometimes you do a great job like a sponge, but literally last year it was not more than two kilometer of construction done in four months going in and coming out from uh, Southland was like uh, headache and chaos. And now I, I'm, I'm amazed that what they missed, like what they missed last year in four months, the walkways and digging and recarpeting. And, and now they are like, like somebody, somebody in higher authorities even don't know how to hide God knows kickbacks or whatever. I, I want to start a construction contractor business with City of St. John's or somebody. Man, they are living a dream, Paddy. It's like, and you you can see, you can see they with the glasses on, with the board of slow or stop rotating, smoke in the mouth. They they this they give you a they give you a smile. They they, they know that how how frustrated you are and, and they smile at your frustration and man, those those like whoever is the contractor and whoever is designing these bids or everything, man, taxpayers' money are like God be with everyone. Eddie, it's 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 amazing. It's it's unbelievable. Even a blind man like me can real can judge. That's literally four months last year and not even two kilometers. It was it was one side and then little bit on the other side and lot of work was done on the walkways. But here you go. We are <clears throat> we are again in the same process. I don't know, it's it's a quality, it's a, something is going on which is like which doesn't make sense, Paddy. Yeah, look, I mean, we lived it here for years on Portugal Cove Road. Now, sometimes, not every bit of road work is created equal, right? Sometimes it's simply hauling up the black top and the sidewalks, put, pouring the concrete, putting down the asphalt. But in some of these longer processes, and I'm not sure exactly what's going on in Southlands, but on Portugal Cove Road, it was the complexity of also replacing a lot of water mains, which takes a lot of time. But, boy, it felt like summer over summer over summer there was construction on Portugal Cove Road, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, it's it's really. Uh, I would I would say, <clears throat> I don't know what is the update or 
joining this uh, boulevard to the galway side uh, that uh, that will in one sense it's it seems like a good idea but on the other sense uh, we living in this part of the city it's going to be very crowded but there is no updates on that uh, seems like the infrastructure the initial infrastructure is there but they are not um, proceeding ahead with that hopefully somebody has some kind of updates uh, <clears throat> i know we always put all the questions on you which even not related to you or your department but you always help so i want to thanks about that also i don't know if we can get a very quick update on progress and timelines regarding southlands boulevard but we'll give it a shot here this morning amir yeah nobody i just uh, thanks for taking the call and um, happy canada day in advance to all the canadians and um, a long uh, happy long weekend to you also and uh, Uh, again thanks to you and your team just want to just want to uh, mention this that hey boys please do do in a logical way do do the construction in a logical way that when you when you got four months then 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 just try to cover up whatever need to be done for next you know next few years But anyway, thanks, Paddy. You had a good weekend, and uh, you are again doing a great job. Thank you, Amir. Stay in touch. Enjoy your weekend as well. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, a little food fishery, some heat pumps, and whatever you want to talk about, don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number eight. Good morning, Bob. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Uh, First-time caller, but uh, I've emailed you a few times, but first time actually calling the line. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, Patty, I'm calling about the, every time you read the news, you're talking about the government coming up with these incentives for people to install heat pumps and uh, electric furnaces and all that, mm-hmm. which I think just someone is not re- reading everything right. The majority of people that I know, and myself included, already have renewable energy in their house, energy, and that is he- uh, the electric heat, but cannot afford to turn it on. So, like myself, I install heat pumps, plus I got liquid heat, which I can't afford to turn on. So, instead of coming up with all these incentives, why don't they just give us a little break on uh, on our liquid heat, and then majority of people will turn on the uh, green energy they already have, instead of uh, telling people to switch to liquid furnaces, which will never be able to afford to pay the light bill once you install a liquid furnace. I guarantee you that. Well, I, I mean, I think there's kind of two different things. The issue here is incentives to switch from oil because people will be initially fearful of what's coming maybe as early as the 6th of July. Whatever you're paying for a liter of home heating fuels now, add 17 cents per liter to it on the 6th. That's pretty much what the PUB is saying. And, you know, there's the, an efficiency issue. Like, I heat my home with oil, so... I don't know what I'm going to do 
but I'm going to give it consideration. We have ind- installed a couple of mini splits, which I find to be very beneficial, not only for a quick burst of heat, but also the dry feature to cool off the living area in these humid days like we've had the last couple of days. I don't think the incentive uh, package announced yesterday is necessarily a bad thing at all, personally. I think one of the key areas now is the cost to help recover from uh, removing the oil tank and upgrade the electric panel. And, of course, the installers could build hydro or new flame power directly versus me having to come out of pocket and wait for a rebate. So... Yeah, and not everyone has to do it. If people don't want to do it, don't do it. But your issue with regarding uh, the price of electricity period, which is, of course, only going to escalate when there's the full and final commissioning of Muskrat Falls, my thought on that would be I think there's a big conversation to be had whether or not it's appropriate to have HST on a necessity of life. Right? If we don't apply to groceries because it's a necessity, then Lord knows heating your home is also one. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with that, Patty. And like you say, it's... Uh it's mostly uh, oil, switch from oil to liquid heat. But what I'm saying is the majority of people that I know, myself included, we already have a liquid heat, fully heated house, cannot afford to turn, on, turn it on, so we're installing heat pumps. So why don't someone give us a break on the, on the, the cost of a liquid heat so we could already turn on the green energy that we already have? That is my, that's, that's my question there, you know. Yeah, and I, I tried to speak to that or the affordability issue, uh, basically with the HST implication, because I think, you know, whether we have a uh, household income threshold for what sort of break can be afforded to folks who heat their home regardless of source, maybe there's that kind of opportunity to be uh, considered or whether it be conversations around HST. But, yes, affordability is becoming it's the number one concern. Like we can talk about healthcare and access to doctors and everything up and down the line. These are all important issues. But cost of living is just taken over. And that includes almost everything that we see and everything we touch, from housing, whether it be your mortgage or rent. Canadians haven't been able to afford a house on the medium, median income for 30 years. So price of food, my insurance, my cell phone bill, Everything I touch is really pressuring me to the brink, and I can only imagine what it's doing to many, whether it be fixed-income seniors or those working for very low wages or minimum wage. Fair ball. You're never going to get me to argue about cost-of-living implications. Yeah, exactly, Patty. And I, uh, I, I thank you for taking my call. This, I just uh, would listen to your program. I want to make that point, and appreciate it. And uh, you're doing a good job, Patty. Thank you very much. Appreciate the time, Bob. Stay in touch. Okay, buddy. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, what would you like me to do here now, David? I haven't been really following the screen. Well, it's not break time. Okay. Let's go to line number two and get a reaction to a caller, Amir, about the uh, status of construction at Southlands Boulevard. That's Ward 5 Councillor of the City of St. John's, Carl Ridgely. Good morning, Carl. You're out of the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. How are you doing? Good, good. Uh, I heard Amir's call, actually, and uh, he's concerned about... Uh, Southlands Boulevard getting tore up again. But anyway, I can assure everybody it's not getting tore up. Uh, the road, the problem with Southlands Boulevard is that it is a uh, a pretty flat road. So the, the bit of concrete work they're doing there now is to ensure that the water is going to run off the road properly. Uh, we had some concerns during the winter with water buildup. So we're taking care of that issue right now with a, a small bit of concrete work. And then it's just top coat to pavement. So, you know, they put the first coat on last year. It was a lawn deed last year. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. But if anybody is familiar with that road, which I am, you know, going back and forth to, to the shopping area during Mount Pearl, uh, that road is a rough, was a rough piece of road. So when we done the road last year, we actually went down about four, four or five feet. There's a base down. There's a mesh goes down. 
So it was done now to address that problem, and, and hopefully that problem is fixed. So what we're looking for construction now this year is probably in the two, two and a half, three week time time frame. By the time there's a bit of concrete work, which is not a big uh, slowdown for for traffic, it's very close to the curb. So <clears throat> we'll get that traffic work fixed and uh, or this concrete work fixed, and then it's just put a bit of pavement down, which should take three or four days, and then dirt out it, or then get new lines put on it, and uh, it's done. Hopefully, it's done for a number of years so that we haven't got to tear it up again in the near future. So, Carl, am I hearing you correctly that within a week this will all be behind us? No, Patty, I said uh, two, two and a half weeks. Oh, okay. I thought you said a few days before X. Okay, two or three weeks. Well, at least when people know that there's uh, a a fair uh, end in sight, you know, uh, certainly a prediction. You can't hold anybody to an exact hour or day that it's going to be done, but hopefully Amir will appreciate the fact that you've called with an update this morning. Yeah, and you know, listen. The, the problem is even even some of the projects that are on to go now, like our spring with so much rain and everything else. When the paving companies were open, they they couldn't they couldn't put you know pavement down. You know, it was down on Water Street. Or, you know, the, the weather slows things down. So as long as we got weather like this, where they can get out and work and get pavement down, uh, you know, you you should see some good progress. So that's a good thing. That's the good news. Appreciate the update, Carl. No, so I take care. You too, buddy. All the best. Bye-bye. It's Carl Ridgely, the councillor for Ward 5 in the city of St. John's. Uh, let's see here. Let's go to line number six. Barry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. No problem. Patty, it's that time of the year. Much anticipated food fisheries opening up tomorrow. Yep, let's go. With the uh, with the uh, Capelin now uh, starting to come in and hit the shoreline, there's a lot of activity around the beaches. And a lot of activity with the codfish as well on the beaches, Patty. I was looking at Facebook with the uh, Cape and Whale Watching Facebook page. Uh, out in uh, Holyrood, they've, they've codfish and even a skate, like a, a, a rayfish, uh, rolling up on the beach after the Cape. Wow. So uh, with the food fishery opening weekend, let's hope that uh, more, a lot of people can, uh, you know, get some fish for themselves that normally wouldn't be able to because they can get them on the beach, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, of course, if that's the easier way to do it, you know, versus whatever you have to do to whether you don't have a boat or you do have a boat and the additional cost versus pluck them off a beach, I'm looking forward to getting on the water, personally. Absolutely, absolutely. And and brings me to the point that I'm calling today, Patty, is is that the uh, talk about a little bit about boat safety, Patty, uh, you know, getting ready for the season. That then, So you should, uh, if you have a boat yourself, you should have your boat and your engine all checked out and ready to go. Uh, have your have yourself be prepared too by having your, uh, your PCO card. That's your boat license. Uh, do you want to make sure that you leave word where you're going to and when you're going to return? If there's any change, that let them know. Uh, get the weather uh, forecast before you go. Monitor the weather while you're out there. Very importantly, though, Patty, of course, as I always say, please, please, folks, wear your life jackets. We've been very fortunate the past number of years, Patty. I'm not trying to jinx this, but you see more and more people wearing their life jackets these days uh, than not when it first uh, started. And, uh, you know, your, your chance of survival with the life jacket is greatly improved with, when, you're, when you're wearing it, not sitting on it. And it's very important that you should be wearing it, and especially important for your kids. They should have their life jackets on before they get aboard the boat. Well, I will put my annual request to the Canadian Transportation Agency to change the rules, which just make zero sense, because you can be hub out of a boat in a heartbeat. Yes, you're mandated to have one life jacket per uh, boater, but you don't have to put them on. Let's just change that period. 
the, you know, because yeah, with you that know, change will be a mindset change, and guarantee it more people will indeed have their life jacket on if that's the regs. Absolutely. I didn't mean cutting cut on you there. No you know that I'm the big advocate of the life jackets, and there's nothing that I would more love to see than to uh, have the government make that in a, a, a law. Patty, it's the same thing. It's the same thing as getting in your car. What's the first thing you do before before you start the car or when you start the car? You put your seatbelt on. You have to put a helmet on an ATV and it's side by side. So what's the difference with the life jacket? It's a good question. Uh, so the law doesn't make any sense. More people wear their seatbelt now because it's the law. Of course, people want to be safe, I would imagine, and get to where they're going in a safe manner. But I think that the uptick in seatbelt use really exploded because they made it a law. And so we can probably do law. the same thing with a life jacket. Why not? Absolutely, absolutely. And and that's something that I'd love to see is, is for that to be enacted. And, uh, you know, the, the, a lot of people say, well, I don't need to put life jacket on because I'm not going to get wet. I'm not going to fall in. But if you do, then you see. And studies and experiments have shown, Patty, that if you're not wearing your life jacket and you fall out of both, both capsides, some kind of weather is after happening. The chances of you getting a hold of that life jacket because it's going to be blown away from you is, is uh, greatly reduced. The chances of if you even get it, the chances of you putting it on and getting it on correctly are, are reduced. And then hypothermia could set in, and then that could be it for you. So, you know, you have to be, wear your life jacket, uh, uh, folks, and be safe when you're out there. That's all. You know, no more to it than that. Your family will thank you for it. Uh, last quick one on the food fishery. Because of an email that you uh, forwarded to me from DFO, the confusion out there is by and large DFO's fault. So we always say the trip limit issue with recreational food fishery is uh, five fish per person, 15 per boat. An email that you and I have seen says pretty clearly, although still some gray, if there's five out in a boat, and hopefully that boat is up to the task of carrying five passengers, uh, if everyone comes in with their five, then there won't be a fine enforced. But they also add to it that it's kind of left up to the individual enforcement officer as to how to handle that situation. What do we know? What do you think people need to know? Well, I don't agree with that, Patty, because, with the enforcement officers, because if the if DFO, TFO is their boss, if DFO is saying that there's no charge going to be brought about, why are enforcement officials, some enforcement officials in certain geographical areas that I'm hearing about, are saying to people that if you come in more than 15 fish in your boat with more than three people aboard, then you're going to be charged. Yeah. And that's not right. And DFO has come out and said that, that nobody will be charged. But yet in the media release, the majority of media releases for the food fishery with the rules and regulation DFO, it plainly states that the, the boat limit is 15 fish. Yeah. So, you know, and... Uh, for regards of more uh, people, more people going out in the boat, that's not really a DFO thing. That's a Transport Canada and uh, Officer Boat Safety thing because the majority of new boats these days, Patty, have a c capacity plate on them. And on the capacity plate, it, it states such things as the maximum number of passengers in the vehicle board your boat. So if you're exceeding that, you can be charged and ticketed, and so you should be because it's an unsafe thing. Yeah, but that's two different things. Well, that's not about how many fish you can bring in. That's right, and this is and I and I said that too, Patty, as well. I'm not saying I didn't expose this for to get more fish. With the example you used, Patty, with five people. So as it is, as it, as it stood, and as uh, as some DFO officials say now, that if you have five people, even if you both can safely carry them, the trip limit is only 15. So two people got to stay on the wharf. Well, that boat comes back in. That's great. Okay, now. But the boat owner has to go to work. The boat owner, something came up for them, or the weather's changed. Now those two people on the wharf lose their opportunity to get their fish. 25 fish is 25 fish, no matter if it's one trip or two trips, Patty. 
No, I know. And that's where they've got to be a little bit more clear in very fundamental issues about how many fish. I mean, that's not a complicated question, right? Uh, I appreciate the time, Barry. I'm off to the break. Enjoy the long weekend. Patty, one more thing quickly. quickly. Uh, Andy, Caplin rolling uh, whale, whale watching uh, Facebook page. There's a lady, Heather Gordon. She started an initiative with catching Caplin, but also uh, to uh, donate Caplin to senior citizens who otherwise can't get down to get them. I'm also uh, headed to Middle Cove Beach today myself to get some cabling for the food banks, Patty. And I'm looking to uh, looking to uh, get anywhere from 500 to 700 cabling, as I usually do, and bag them off and give them to the food banks. Good on you. People will appreciate a bit of the comfort food for many is indeed a feed of cabling. Uh Thanks for the time, Barry. Good luck. Thank you, Patty. As always, it's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Take care. All right, bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, uh, what happened to Doc? He wants to talk about oil, which we can do at some point. Then there's the issue about red tape for municipalities when we're talking about starting or operating a small business, and then whatever you want to talk about, don't go away. And welcome back. Let us go to line number seven. And good morning, caller. You're on the air. Good morning, caller on seven. You're on the air. Hello. Hello. Yes, sir. Uh, this is uh, my first time calling there, Patty. Okay, welcome. Um, I'm uh, living in a, I'm a businessman in Trinity Bay North. I've been from here all my life. I got several businesses there. And everything that I do in the community, in Miss Pelly, is for Miss Pelly to join together. Everything that I do, I got nothing on it, all the red tape. I'm a municipality. I got to follow every rule, regulation, code, everything, which I don't mind. But I got other people in the town that do not follow nothing. Do not follow, get no permits, don't follow no codes, no nothing, and a lot gets covered up. Can you give us some examples of what you're adhering to and others are not? Well, okay, for for instance, uh, I mean, I, 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 mean I, I, I build a bill of gas fire just a few years ago i had to get all permits from uh well actually i'm on the main highway so i had to get permits for access permits to pull in off the highway and permits to dig along the shoulder of the road put me water and sewer in permits to dig for electrical and fire inspections and if all safety regulations all had to be done would many of those and, be provincial regulations or municipal well, is, is actually this municipal is supposed to be looking after it. I mean, they, they, it's, it's actually provincial. Yeah. But if you're if you ain't got all your rules and regulations in place, that you're not allowed to build. How can you build something that you got no permits for to actually build? I mean, right? It just don't add up. And then there's other people in the town running businesses that's not paying no taxes. And this, this is all kinds of stuff happening here. And I, I'm, I'm to the point, I'm at my wit's end, that I got several businesses here in the town and in, in the municipality. And everything that I do is not in only a pile of red tape, a pile of it. I'm not joking with you. And everyone else can go ahead and do what they like. I don't need no permits, no nothing, and he covers it all up. So, yeah. I mean, I like to know, I mean, where, where do I go? I mean, do I sell everything off and get out of here, or because I'm at my wit's end? 
I imagine there. Look, for small business, forever a day, whether we talk about payroll tax or the red tape to get either a business open or to improve or to renovate or to expand, it is absolutely a red tape nightmare. The only reason I asked about some of whether or not some of these were provincial, like, for instance, easing in off highways, which the high roads, of course, are provincial responsibility, those regulations would be inside the department. That's why I was just wondering if there was, you know, an easier route with the province versus a, a much more difficult route with the municipality, because I've been involved on both fronts and it's a headache. Well, uh, Patty, I mean, I noticed that some of the stuff happened that was told to me from transportation and work that it was that actually that they told me plain and plump. I'm not going to mention no name, but whoever's looking after this and doing this, I mean, you're in violations that you've got places filled and stuff that you're supposed to have merge lanes and everything else. I mean, how do you get away with all this stuff? And I'm not up ordering the town that, uh, that costs me, it takes me years to go to all kinds of red tape. And not only for one business, my Patty, this is numerous business. I mean, I got several businesses in town, and like I was saying, that everything I do, I don't mind following out of those regulations. I'm more than glad to do it, because at the end of the day, that I know is that there's, there's, I haven't got to look over my shoulder if something goes wrong, because I got everything covered. But, I mean, how do you justify that you got someone else that the council is letting everyone away with it, not paying no taxes, not doing this, not doing that, and, I mean, and competing against you? So, I mean, actually, at the end of the day, it's cost me in lost revenue. Understood. So, when you speak to whichever department or whichever councillor or bureaucrat at the town and say, okay, here's an example, uh, sir or madam, uh, this business that does this, that does not pay taxes, does not have permits, why is that compared to how I have to follow different regulations? When you put specifics to them, what do they say? Well, Patty, I can go down there and go into meetings. I've been in meetings down there stood up in the council meeting several times. You can't find one word of a, of a minute that, that, that was made note of. None of it. All 30 years. I mean, this is not something that's happened over the last couple of years. This has been going on for years and years and years. And me and my wife, I mean, we got millions of dollars sunk in San Jose Bay North, right? In businesses. I mean, and I love it here. But I, I, at the last few months, I'm at my wit's end that I turn my stomach to walk out from the door in the morning, step on the ground, because I don't want to live in no more. Because I'm at my wit's end with this. How do you get a hit for a business plan when you've got so many people that's on the council for years that hate your God and abuse and misspelling? I don't care about no more, right? They use a municipality to actually cut your throat and using their authority to actually cut, to cut you up and, and do you in. I mean, there's contracts awarded here in this municipality that's not even going out well, like get one tender bid or, and big money. Big money that should, that's supposed to be put out into the public. Not, not just in local contractors and stuff that's going on there. I mean, ah, oh, this is happening here. The, you know, it's one thing to talk about the number regulations and the red tape that people face, but it becomes an even more frustrating issue when it's not being played fairly across the board. So, yeah, I, the, the, there's two conversations there, right? It's one, the amount of red tape, and two, it's that there's a double standard, which makes it yep. worse for 
everybody, including the councillors, okay. and most importantly for business people like you who are following the rules, getting the permits, doing what's on the books. Uh, anything else very quickly before I have to take a break for the news? Uh, well, actually, Terry, uh, Patty, there's not all the councillors. There's not all of them. There's actually a, there's about the majority that they actually believe that whatever the town manager says is gospel. And that's fact of it. And that's, that's, that's my opinion. But I'd like to know who I can get a hold to to try to straighten this out. Because I contacted my MHA. Right? He knows all about it. He's aware of this for years. Well, you can probably, and I would suggest, if it was me, I'd go directly to the department. The new minister is John Haggy from Municipal Affairs. And if there are issues inside of what might be a dysfunctional council or a council not playing by the rules, uh, fairly or equitably, that's where I would start my next uh, well, batch of calls. Proof. I, got, I got proof to any of that. Okay, right? fair enough. So, I mean, I'm not on here telling lies. I mean, I'll right? And that's the fact. I wouldn't come on the air and tell lies. Everything that I just said there is all true whole works of it and this is only a small portion of it very small portion i turn to the department next and if you do and you make any headway or you run into a a brick wall let me know i will i'll get back to you i appreciate the time this morning i'll let you know what happens on this okay okay thank you you're welcome bye-bye all right let's go ahead and take a break when we come back plenty of show left of course on the topic entirely up to you don't go away Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Colin, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Bailey. How are you this morning? Doing okay, thanks. How you doing? Good, thanks. Good. Wanted to wish everybody a uh, pretty happy Canada Day and... Uh, ask people to take time to reflect uh, on Memorial Day also for those who have uh, fallen and shed their blood so that we may all be free and have the rights that we have in this country. Just uh, a little reminder of uh, our history in this province with Beaumont Hamill. We lost a generation of fine men and boys. And it was an all-volunteer army that went over to fight. So the least we can do is uh, take a moment while we're celebrating our uh, national holiday to uh, reflect on the lives lost, I think. Uh, Beaumont Hamill is, of course, a devastating part of Newfoundland Labrador history, and insofar as fighting for our rights and freedoms and the like, in that particular instance, I think it's the shameful use of our lads as just uh, cannon fodder. You know, we were lambs to a slaughter. That wasn't a fight. That was a... A slaughter. I don't know if there's a better word I can think of on that front, but not to derail your your ultimate point, but fair enough. Yeah. I want to talk about the uh, attempted coup last week in uh, Russia by the Wagner mercenary group and that uh, merry band of thugs uh, headed by Evgeny uh, Prigozhin. You know, wars are uh, are dynamic, and Mr. Putin uh, hitched his wagon to uh, Prigozhin and his uh, cabal of fellow murderous psychopaths to do his dirty work in Ukraine. And uh, it looks like the um, uh, Prigozhin and the Wagner group uh, tried to make a little attempt to, to uh, get on the road to Moscow and uh, try to uh, overthrow the Russian government. 
this is such a complicated issue to follow and to really know what's going on. You know, I don't know if there's a real appetite inside the Russian regular army to join forces with the Wagner group. It doesn't seem to be the case. Certainly, a, you know, the road to Moscow would have been a bloody one for the entirety, including the leadership of Progozhin on down. So uh, in part of the complication for me, Colin, is I'm not even really sure what the Russians know, the Russian people, because early on it was pretty well reported that they knew very little. And, you know, some people didn't even know that their sons were actually in the war or were dead. So there's a lot of real gray area here to really firm, for me personally, I can only speak for myself, to firmly grasp the implications of all these different issues or moving parts because I don't know actually who knows what and how widely and accurately the news is being disseminated inside the country of Russia itself. It's just hard to say. Yeah, you're right, uh, Putin. Uh, I think you pretty much have to, unless proven otherwise, you, you have to assume that Putin has a stranglehold on the media, a propaganda machine, uh, that is the Russian uh, state-controlled media there, and the Internet. Anything that's on the Internet there is controlled by the government. Um, I think uh, you may see some moves uh, within the top brass of the Russian military to try to get rid of Putin. Yeah, it's always a possibility. Um but I, the, the bigger concern here that I don't hear anybody talking about is uh, outside of Russia's borders, particularly with China. How is China going to view uh, this turmoil that's occurring on their border with Russia? They're looking at uh, Putin as a weakened leader now. And um, I, I think their view is that uh, an unstable Russia and a weakened Putin is a threat to uh, China and the Chinese motherland. What is uh, Xi Jinping, what is he going to do? How is he going to react to that? What are the What's the Russian military? Uh, sorry, what, what's the uh, Chinese military and the uh, the Chinese Communist Party? What are they going to What are they going to do, if anything at all, in reaction to the events in Russia? You know, it's a fair question uh, with which I have, or of which I have absolutely no idea. Um, but it's it's also curious. Look, this obviously does present a weakened Russian leader. If Prigozhin and other senior leaders of the Wagner group were allowed to, as opposed to the threats of being charged with treason and executed, what have you, they simply just made their way to Belarus, you know, peacefully and without yep. restraint. And so then there's questions about, look, you know, as people call the last dictator in Europe being Lukashenko and his role in all of this, like, I have no idea. But when you put it all together, it's a a pile that leads down a road where the world was not ready for a extended stay for Putin at the helm of Russia, and I guarantee you the world is not ready for post-Putin Russia. Absolutely not. There's going to be a power vacuum there. And uh, I find it astounding that uh, Prigozhin walked into two cities in uh, southwestern Russia, in the in uh, the Rostov region. Uh, each one of these cities had a million people uh, in, in those cities. They're big cities. They're like the size of Ottawa or Edmonton. And he got no resistance at all from the people living there. You know, not a bullet was fired. Uh, no blood was shed. The people welcomed him, gave him food. And, and uh, he's like a, a local folk hero there. So that tells me that there's a lot going on inside Russia, that the people, uh, the, the general populace there are uh, satisfied with Putin and, and his regime. And that can only breathe further turmoil, I think. Uh, about a week ago, the Russians moved some of their nuclear weapons into Belarus. So now Belarus is a nuclear armed nation. Who has control of those nuclear weapons? Is it Putin? He's in a weakened state now, or is it Lukashenko, the other thug in Minsk? This is a this is very like he's, like you correctly said. You know, there's a lot of moving parts here. It's very dynamic, and anything can happen. Uh, it's right on the border with uh, a lot of NATO countries. 
this can very easily spill over into a NATO territory, and then we're all into something much bigger than just a Ukraine-Russian war, right? Yeah, and, you know, like in my social media feed, I would imagine many others, the pro-Russian stuff is wild. Uh, anyway, uh, anything else you want to say, Colin, before they flag me off here? No, that's pretty much it, Patty. I just want to wish everybody a uh, very happy Canada Day and uh, take some time to remember those who have fallen so that we can all be free and enjoy the rights that we have in this country. Appreciate the time. Cheers. Thanks, Colin. Bye-bye. Bye now. All right, let's take a break on time, as usual. When we come back, there's been some recent announcements regarding the oil industry. And when we do the comparisons, you know, we talk tourism, Iceland, oil, Norway. That and more after this. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Doc, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. How about you? Good. I just want to follow up John Attenheimer's comments on, on Bill Marshall. I mean, I lived through the, the Peckford years and the Frank Moore's years and the Bill Marshall years. And uh, he certainly was a giant by in, not only in Newfoundland politics, but in pursuing with unbridled intensity his vision for Newfoundland Labradors offshore. Uh, you know, he was the type of leader we we really needed when we needed to fight Ottawa, and we have that need, of course, now today. But uh, I was kind of taken aback and really sorry to hear that he had passed. Uh, fair enough. Uh, I lived around him for a while. I, you know, I certainly won't pretend to be a friend of Bill Marshall's or anything of the, yeah. of the like. But I did have the opportunity to know him. I'm, I am familiar with his history and his impact, and it is a sad yeah. loss. There's no question. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, I just want to talk for a moment, Patty, about what's happening in Norway and contrast what Norway is doing in terms of oil and gas development and exploration and production and the attitude the Norwegian government has compared to the attitude that we're unfortunately facing in Ottawa. And uh, it's, Norway, as you know, is undeniably probably one of the greenest, if not the greenest countries in the world. Yes, last week, Norway approved $18.5 billion worth of investments in 19 projects on the Norwegian continental shelf. And these projects will be developed by uh, Acre BP, which is a Norwegian oil development and exploration company. But even more so, and I'd like to read this quote it's only a few lines and i because to me it tells everything about how we are not pursuing it here in canada and it's unfortunate for newfoundland and labrador the petroleum minister quote unquote in norway as to these projects from the greenest country in the world he said these are projects that contribute to continued high and stable production from the Norwegian continental shelf and to employment and value creation for the whole of society. We are further developing the petroleum business so that jobs and large incomes are created for the community. They can do that and yet uh, balance it off uh, by taking action in terms of uh, changing climate. Different attitude entirely from what we're facing in Ottawa. Yes, and a country that clearly wants to have its cake and eat it too. 
So I don't yeah. dispute the numbers, but uh, there's also a couple of little intangibles there that are part of the conversation. So while they could be as green as they are, whether it be with electric vehicles, alternative sources of energy within the, the confines of Norway, they absolutely do contribute to the oil and gas uh, fossil fuel uses elsewhere. They're the only net exporter of oil and gas in Europe. So mm-hmm. it's fine for them to create what they're creating, but it's sort of just like the Sierra Club taking the uh, Baden order and Equinor to court about the approval or the green light from the environment minister is that they can talk about emissions on site, but never calculate the downstream emissions because that's, of course, the important part of the story, which has its own problematic concerns. So in addition to that, there's a vast difference in how Norway operates in the North Sea versus this country, given the fact that Acre BP, Equinor, Wintershell, uh, and OMV, I think is the other one, involved in these 19 approvals, in large part, they're sovereign companies. Right? Oh, so yeah. they've got a stake in it that is so different than how we even operate in this country. And I don't think anybody seriously thinks that the province or the country should be in the sovereign ownership of oil companies. We don't necessarily, quote-unquote, trust government to uh, fill a pothole, let alone be involved in exploration as the, as the operator and or the producers. So there's a lot of differences between us and Nor- Norway when we, you know, say... Here's their investment, 19 projects, net ex- the only net exporter, yet that's a different kettle of fish. They're their companies. Yes, but uh, the thing here is, the important thing is the attitudinal difference. And if we had even a percentage of this kind of an attitude coming from Ottawa, uh, we'd be in a different position than we are today in terms of the perception that oil companies may have uh, or or may not have, we'll see, about uh, continuing their development offshore Newfoundland. I mean, we've already had a few companies who have said, like Woodside and uh, now BP, uh, who have said, mm, we're not doing it, we're, we're, we're going to take a walk. And it was Woodside, as you recall, that left $200 million on the table. So, you know, a lot of it is attitude. I mean, if, uh, if you have the correct attitude towards something, you can build relationships and you can move an industry forward. If the attitude and the relationship is not there, then it gets much, much, much more difficult, especially when it comes to investing big, big dollars in a particular economy. There was hundreds of millions of dollars floated directly to the companies, none for individuals. This is where I have a hard time squaring the circle in full, is like Equinor. BP is its own circumstance, and they were talking about recoverable oil of some 5 billion barrels, which is enormous. Just think about the fact that Hibernia has had such a contribution over the years. They just cleared their 1 billionth barrel last fall, so 5 billion is just a wild amount of recoverable oil. And there's probably every bit of 5 billion barrels. But Equinor walked away with a green light. So I don't know yeah. how that's anybody's problem but Equinor's. Uh, yeah, and Equinor, I think, will walk back, too. But, you know, the other statistic that you might want to, people might want to hear and look into, that the oil industry, oil and gas industry in Newfoundland Labrador, since its inception, in royalties alone, has contributed $25 billion into Newfoundland in royalties over the years that we've had an oil and gas industry. Just imagine where we'd be without that $25 billion. No, I, I, people don't deny the impact that the money's had, of, of course. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, there's all kinds of arguments about how that money has been spent by various right. governments <laughs> over the years. I mean, we'll save that for another day. But I appreciate yeah. the time, Doc. Have a great weekend. 
Thanks, Eddie. Enjoy. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, bye. Uh, let's keep rolling. Maybe get a comment uh, coming from the Liberal member for Burjo Lapoil. He's also the Minister of Industry, Energy and Technology, Andrew Parsons. Minister Parsons, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you? Um, doing okay. <laughs> That's good. Good to hear. So, Friday, you know? It is Friday. Not a day too soon. So just react to that because I do think that we do a bit of a poor job not taking all the intangibles when we do comparisons, tourism to Iceland, oil and gas to Norway, but the attitudinal issue that Doc spoke to. Your thoughts? Well, I think there's some merit there. It's, it, it's hard, first of all. Like, we've always been compared... Uh, you know, Newfoundland and Labrador to you know other nations. When the part is, we are just we're just one province in a federation. So it's hard to say because you know I don't know what the subdivisions of Norway are. Uh, but it appears, and again, look, I'm not on the ground in Norway. I don't know what the social license leanings are these days. Uh, but it does seem sometimes like there's a, there is a difference there. Uh, but at the same time, look, we continue to manage to move forward here when it comes to uh, decision making, when it comes to getting sanctions, when it you know comes to getting things done. You know, some of the problem we have, some of the challenge we have is just you know these companies. I think more and more are driven uh, by a bottom line. I mean, the, the question is not making money versus not making money. The question becomes how much money are we making? Uh, there's more of a demand these days to meet uh, what the shareholder wants than perhaps ever before, which does present some difficulties when we're dealing with them. Yeah, and I mean, I have no idea when peak oil will be arrived at. You know, the regulator in this country figures 2026. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know how accurate that might be. But in these last throws, whether it be 10 or 20 years from now, the maximizing profit will be the guiding principle not all about human rights and regulatory certainty and all the rest will be squeezing every last nickel out of this portion of their business and even the biggest oil players in the world they are actively working towards alternative forms of energy as part of their portfolios because they see at some point there will be some need for their return to shareholders to be fueled by something possibly other or complemented by more and more things beyond fossil fuels not because i say so because they say so Absolutely. No, you're, you're right on the money there. I mean, look, these are extremely smart companies in multiple facets, one of them being uh, delivering profit. And they have to recognize the fact that there will be, you know, we are on this transition, just like you're saying, when does that transition happen? Nobody has a crystal ball here. And I find it hard to believe any of the predictions because things have changed so rapidly and in such a volatile way. Uh, but they do see that there are other opportunities and they'll take this huge bottom line they have and put them towards that. Plus the fact that these days you are seeing in some cases more of an activist board where you get a few, we'll all call them rogue, but I mean rogue to them who will come on and demand the company make other changes uh, towards the green, you know, the, the green transition. But it comes down to at the end of the day, look, they are driven by profit. And it comes down to the jurisdictions they deal with, such as ourselves, saying, look, we have other balances. We have other concerns. And it's about finding that balance in the middle where everybody can live. And like any type of settlement, I would say, you know, you, you both find a way to move forward thinking you got the, exactly what you need. Well, let's look at BP. I mean, and that one to me is not as much a head-scratcher as Equinor was because I'm, I, I, I have a funny feeling, and you can react to this if you want. This is public negotiations. It just feels like it to me. But in the world of BP, let's stick with Doc's point for a second. 
What do you think is the attitudinal issue regarding BP? Because you don't have to read between the lines from uh, Environment Minister Stephen Gibo. He has said quite clearly it's going to be more and more difficult in the future for these production fields to get the green light. So BP sitting out maybe 5 billion barrels worth of recoverable oil. Does that feel to you like an attitudinal-based decision? Or what do you know? I, I, I don't think so. I generally, I, I, I don't think that that, well, from the federal government per se, I don't think that that attitude uh, is really much of a difference than what we've seen for the last few years. So when you get companies that, and, and again, look, I'm, I'm speaking from a perspective or an opinion here. This is not based on a conversation with BP. Although I will say, when you when you go and switch your business line to leave, to, to come and buy into Newfoundland and Labrador, you obviously do so factoring in where you think the federal government may go in terms of decision-making. So I, I, I think all these risks are factored into their decision-making. In this particular case, look, I, I, I tend to think that there's a, a logic behind what they're doing. They've obviously expended a significant amount of capital into doing what they've done, but we'll see where they go. Not to say we're completely always apprised of what their internal business decisions are. When it comes to drilling, I mean, and exploration, you know, obviously we encourage it because we know that there's a value. Even when they don't deliver, there's a huge value and there's a spin-off that we retain as a province. Um, you know, as for Equinor, look, we continue to, to say that we want to see it move forward. We continue to say uh, that, you know, we think there is a solution space there. And you know, we'll continue on that trajectory. We'll continue on that path. I do think there's a, a positive. There's a, I do think there are, there's optimism or reason for optimism and there's good news to come. Uh, but sometimes these things take time and operate beyond our schedule. What do you know about BP, though? What did they say? Was there any communications with the government? Because all we've heard is that they've not just uh, suspended the play, they've abandoned the play, which are two distinctly different things in that industry. So what have they told you directly? Well, I, I'm, not, I'm never comfortable with passing on communications uh, publicly uh, that I've had with companies because I, I don't think that's going to do anything to, number one, benefit the relationship uh, with the proponent. And that's on any front, not just oil and gas. The second part is that if you don't maintain a good relationship with you know, proponents like this of any nature, that is going to have a negative effect on the people that you represent, the constituents. We want to ensure that they have a trust in us, that they're comfortable doing business with us. So, look, we have had some conversations with them. Uh, they continue, look, they just opened an office here. I would like to think that you don't go and do these things without factoring in the possibility for setbacks in certain operations. I don't think you go and set up an office somewhere, anywhere, without thinking that you are there for, for some time. So we'll continue on that front. Uh, we've, you know, we've established a solid relationship with them. Obviously, they are also a partner in uh, Beta Nord. So, you know, look, we we know that there's a huge asset there, but again, it's hard to tell sometimes what the the conversations are at a corporate or higher level. Uh, and so, like I say, I'm not privy to those corporate decisions, but we'll continue our work with them. Okay. Uh, let's go to Labrador and the conclusion of the Expo. Were you in Labrador by chance? I didn't. I was not in Labrador for the Expo this year. I happened to be there last year, but uh, didn't... Uh, didn't have a, a, I guess, a role this year. But from everything I understand, it's it, look. I thought it was wonderful when I was there last year, and I, from everything I gather, they had a hell of a show this year. Well, big load of delegates. I think over 400 and lots of exhibits, over 70, and that came in a variety of different fronts. 
you know where I where my headspace is on this stuff. We can do everything we want to, to scream at the top of the mountaintop that we are the only democratic country with all these critical minerals. But unlike some other industries, we haven't necessarily captured all the maximizing of profits and job creation, tax base, royalties, and otherwise. I know the focus was at some point on supply chain matters and you know not just uh, extracting and selling it elsewhere and then buying it back a finished product. What's your message inside that world? Because I think we've got to be pretty firm in benefits agreements to attend to, number one, housing, and number two, you know, secondary or tertiary processing. Absolutely. So when it comes to the Labrador space and mining, I, I guess specifically, we continue to see a huge opportunity there. And there's different fronts. I mean, on one front, look, there's a huge swath of Labrador. It's vast. And, you know, my colleague Lisa Dempster always says that, look, there's so much left there that hasn't been looked at yet. So that's why we're continuing to find a way to increase expiration and to allow juniors to get in there. Sometimes uh, people out there in the province, certainly I was one of them before I got in this role, didn't understand the intricacies between juniors and, and prospectors. And then these people come in and do the early work and then it ends up getting, getting bought up by someone else. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity there. We need to continue to invest in that. On the other side of things, uh, we have to continue to look at look when we talk about uh, rare earths and critical minerals. We have to look at the possible. We, we can't just allow these to be uh, found here and then we not retain the benefit. The last part of this, obviously, is I continue to see and I'm being told about huge opportunities, especially when it comes to Lab West and our ore, the possibilities for green steel. Like anything, it has some challenges with it, pr primarily the fact that it's going to require huge power development. Uh, but there's a lot of places that would kill to have those problems, those challenges, compared to what they already have. That's my next question, is about energy. So they want affordable and stable energy sources. Where do they come from? Because mining expansion comes with a thirst for power. So, you know, you say it's a problem that many jurisdictions would like to have, but where does the solution lie? So we have opportunities in Labrador. And look, I'm cognizant too, Patty. Like when I, start, when I talk with certain of these, like people take it as some kind of, uh, you know, oh, there's a certainty or the auto work's already started. Gull Island is one of those examples where the min minute you mention it, you, you, you literally start getting emails and calls from people. Oh, I can't believe you're doing this without talking to us. It's like, Jesus, no, we're, we're, we're just talking about it as an opportunity and potential. But that's never getting developed without a lot of cooperation by a lot of different parties. But when I look at the Upper Churchill, the opportunities that are there for not a huge, huge investment, there's a lot of power that can come out of there. Plus the fact that, look, what is the possibility of wind when it comes to being used to power, you know, private operations? So not, like right now, a lot of the wind conversation is regarding hydrogen and getting exported, but there's a lot of opportunity to create this power by using your own towers. That's a conversation that we're having. Uh, so the you know the upper churchills there. That's that's a huge that's a huge opportunity. There's a significant number of megs that can come out of that. Um, but again, it's not to me the big challenge is who pays for this. Uh, citizens obviously cannot and should not have the burden full load. Uh, nor do I think government should be just the the one party here. This is an opportunity for partnerships here, and I think companies and shareholders are uh, willing to pay for power development because. It, Right now, the biggest opportunity is when it comes to green. There's a demand for that. There's a demand to pay a premium for it. Well, I harken back to the Alderaan conversation and the hundreds of millions of dollars for a third hydro line to go in there. And both parties standing firm, and consequently, nothing really happened. Uh, last one before I let go. Are, is it next week we're going to hear more about wind, hydrogen, ammonia? 
I am desperately hoping, sir. That's the, that's, that's the best I can put it. Uh, there's absolutely been some slippage in the process. I think you can read the frustration in my tone. Um, the frustrations with the fact that, look, we're trying to get it done right, and in, all, in most of the cases, it's not just on us as a department. We're dealing with multiple other players, including the proponents themselves, uh, trying to make sure we have all the proper information. So look, we continue on that. We, we really want, when we do this, to do it right. And I'm not going to sacrifice that for getting it out a few days early, but let's just say I'm at the point where I and we and everybody want it out ASAP. Two very quick ones. Sustainable growth regarding mining expansion. You know, we've got a basically a fly-in, fly-out work camp in Labrador, when in fact that is not sustainable growth if we're looking at community impact. Should housing be a clear part of the benefits agreements with these mining companies? Because it's fine to create the jobs, but if people are going back to their hometowns in Fredericton and in Thunder Bay to spend the money, then we haven't maximized the opportunity once again. I uh, absolutely tend to agree that this is a, you know, and look, I haven't been a big part of mining benefits agreements. A lot of these are pre-existing, but the more and more that I see having been on the ground, the more and more that I hear uh, this is a huge need, and look, if companies want to come here and they're getting huge value out of this, then we have to find a way to have some longer-term value, which includes housing opportunities. So I'm, I'm not closed off by any stretch to that conversation. If the federal, does, federal government doesn't back off with carbon tax tomorrow, clean fuel regulations, which I think we'll find out more about on the 6th of, Jan, or 6th of July, maybe 2025, with 40,000 homes and the yesterday's incentive packages to move from oil to electricity, is it time to restart the conversation about whether or not HST is appropriate for the necessity of life, which is heating your home? What I will say on that is that a part of this conversation has been the fact that I don't think we are truly aware of what that impact was, will be, and I think that falls on the people that are putting in the impact to explain to everybody what that impact's going to be. So there's going to be a lot of conversations coming on this. Part of my reason speaking earlier is that I anticipate, uh, you know, when people start feeling this impact, whether it's tomorrow with carbon or in a few days when we see what the clean fuels impact is going to be, I impact a lot of people calling and reaching out, and I just want to make sure it's directed to the right place. This is a federal government decision. Uh, and, and look, you know, again, we can't frame this as, oh, we're thinking about the climate. Everybody's thinking about the climate, climate change. Look, we get it. But there's got to be a smarter solution here that's not going to, you know, disproportionately impact Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. And I think we're all smart enough and well, well-intentioned enough to get together and figure it out rather than just put it on people. The Parliamentary Budget Office says that $0.17 cents per litre regarding clean fuel regulations by 2030, and that's another big number in addition to the other taxes on a litre. Appreciate the time this morning, Minister. Uh, if I could have one quick minute, Patty. Sure. Just uh, didn't know the gentleman, but uh, read about the passing of Mr. Marshall this morning, and uh, this is one of those times where people can talk about Stripe and this and that, but his impact on this province I think is immeasurable. I don't think enough people know about the impact that that gentleman left here. And so just want to send my condolences to his family and friends and certainly uh, has been a loss. We echo that. Thank you, Minister Parsons. Take care. Take care, you too. Uh, Andrew Parsons is the Liberal member for Burgess Lapoile, Minister of in- Industry, Energy, Technology. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. 
Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. That's Franco Terrazano. Good morning, Franco. You're on the air. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Happy to have you on. Well, hey, look, I mean, tomorrow the federal government is about to make life uh, quite a bit more expensive for people in Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, You see the carbon tax, that's going up because of the federal government. It's going to cost you about an extra three cents per liter of gas. It's going to cost about 17 cents per liter of diesel and home heating oil. And it's going to cost about 12 cents per cubic meter of natural gas. At the end of the day, uh, it's going to cost a little bit more to fuel up your car on the way to work. It's going to cost you a little bit more to keep your home warm during those cold winter months. And, you know, to the PBO, the PBO says that the carbon tax will cost the average family in Newfoundland and Labrador about 350 bucks more this year, 350 more than what they're getting back in rebates. Yeah, there's a couple of tangly issues here in this province on those fronts. Natural gas, for starters, has no implications here, but I get your point. The, the major concern that I hear more is about home heating fuels, to be honest with you. Yeah. Because in the past four years, then the provincial structure, the province uh, collected the carbon tax and kept it. With this, at least there'll be some softening, not entirely. The rebate doesn't cover everybody's uh, impact regarding carbon tax. No, one's, no one says that out loud, or they shouldn't anyway. So there's going to be a little bit of relief there. For this province, it's the 40,000 homes that are on oil-fired, uh, uh, pardon me, oil-fired heat in their house. That's where 17 cents, pretty much immediately, not tomorrow. The, the regulator here says that it will probably be addressed on the 6th of, uh, of July. So, but that's coming, and it's coming quick, which is why I don't know if you were listening to our conversation with Minister Parsons was, you know, if we're going to be under the thumb of this federal scheme, then it should be time to re- reignite the conversation about the appropriateness of HST applied to home heating fuels. We don't apply it to groceries. Why? Because it's a necessity of life. Heating your home, I would suggest, is very much akin to that. Well, I, I totally agree there. I, I totally agree. I mean, you also got HST every time you go to the pumps as well. That's right. It. And, yeah. and the problem with HST is is obviously the cost, but it's also a tax on tax. So how it works, folks, is that the federal government charge or governments charge per liter fuel taxes on the price of fuel. And then the HST or the GST or the sales tax is applied on top of those taxes. So you're paying essentially a tax on tax. Now, Another thing, though, that we have to remember as well is, is one of the issues with carbon taxes is that it's not just on the home heating oil. It's not just uh, at the price of the pumps. This is a tax that cascades throughout the full economy, right? Because when you have farmers in other provinces that are paying more to dry their, their grain through propane costs, natural gas costs, those costs make their way to the grocery store. But also, how do we get the goods at the store? We get them by, by delivering them by truck. And every time a big rig truck driver has to fuel up his tanks with diesel, that costs more, and those costs cascade to the grocery store as well. Yeah, and again, for us, and I think it's incumbent on our federal federal minister, Liberal Minister O'Regan, and Minister Hutchings on the province's west coast, if we're talking about implications of clean fuel regulations or otherwise, Marine Atlantic burns somewhere around 33 million liters per year. That automatically makes it more expensive for individual passengers and commercial traffic to come across Marine Atlantic. They're not going to suffer that additional cost because they've got a 65% cost recovery model in place. I'm paying that one. So if I'm a federal minister and I'm trying to sell this in this province, I would be absolutely the first thing out of my mouth was I'm going to deal with Marine Atlantic because that's, that's as important as an extra three cents plus HST to fill up my vehicle. Yeah, and, and you know, it's, it's an extra three cents, but, you know, you've, I remember in your previous conversation, you're talking about the second carbon tax, those fuel regulations, 
And, and I remember you saying it's going to cost, you know, an extra 17 cents a litre by 2030. That's absolutely correct. That's from the parliamentary budget officer. Uh, but the cost to the, the average family, when you add in both of these, let's call them carbon taxes, the cost to the average family in Newfoundland and Labrador, when you take, uh, take a look at all the different economic impacts, it's going to be about $2,000 plus a year by 2030. Um, you know, that's got to be quite the uh, sticker shock to a lot of people who are listed in right now. Uh, I'm sure that a lot of people on The Rock are having the same issues as the rest of Canada, where people are really struggling just to scrape by, uh, living paycheck to paycheck, a lot of people. Um, a lot of people worried about the grocery bills, uh, heating bills in the winter, of course, and of course, gas bills right around this time of the year. Um, and I don't really know too many folks who have that kind of extra money to pay these higher and higher taxes or higher and higher regulations, whatever we want to call them. Yeah, well, I mean, I sit in this chair and hear these types of stories day in, day out, uh, all year round. And it's just becoming even more and more complicated when we look at whatever the contributing factors are. And there's varied contributing factors to inflation, which has come back to earth a little bit at 3.4%. That does not impede, or pardon me, that does not consider it's about 9% in the grocery store and all the issues surrounding it. And some of the competition bureaus report this past Tuesday about some recommendations to maybe level out the competitive landscape and or how the giant five not only control three quarters of the sales but they also control the vast majority of distribution so there are some problems that we need to address and concurrently you know it's not just about the carbon tax not just about clean fuel regulations that's not just about my cell phone bill it's not just about exploration there's just so many things that if we try to take them one by one will be a month of sundays and consequently make no advancement i'll give you the final word this morning franco well i just want to say folks remember like a carbon tax increase, fuel regulation increase in Newfoundland and Labrador, it's going to hit you right in the pocket. But, you know, what's so frustrating is that it's really not going to do anything to reduce global emissions. Making Newfoundland and Labradorians pay more to heat their homes or to fill up their groceries or to fuel up their minivans, it's really not going to do anything uh, to cut emissions in places like China, India, Russia, and the United States. Uh, that's why we really think that these types of regulations, these types of carbon taxes come with a whole bunch of pain for people and, and don't really pollute into the problems that we're facing. I appreciate the time this morning, Franco. Thanks for the call. Thanks for having me on. Take care. You're welcome, sir. Bye-bye. All right, Franco Terrazano, the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Let's take a break. Well, for over four decades, people have enjoyed the teddy bear picnic. It looks like that might be coming to an end. Terry Riley, teddy bear man himself, right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Terry Riley. You're on the air. You're breaking my heart, guys. Nice to hear your voice, Teddy. Always nice to talk to my friends at VOCM. But uh, we don't have enough time left in this in this half hour. Um, I'm going to suggest that maybe you you you, you dedicate a, a half hour, an hour of your program tomorrow or whenever, or well, I guess not tomorrow. But the the teddy bears picnic uh, is is an institution in this province. Some people, some people will say. And um, the, the, since the way I first talked to you and your colleagues, uh, it looked like at that point that it wasn't going to happen. Since then, I've had uh, daily phone calls, Facebook messages, calls from mobile phone calls from uh, around the province, from people saying, how can we do this? How can we make sure that the teddy bears picnic happens? And and Patty, it, it, it's it's been my fault over the years that I've let the teddy bear picnic become all about Terry Riley, the teddy bear man, uh, which I will be the to 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 beyond my my passing day, I guess. But the thing is that um, it's the response I'm getting uh, on, on my Facebook and on, on my phone 
is just like overwhelming. And uh, to, to tell you now, which I'm trying to do and try to shorten my words, is uh, what's what's developed since uh, a couple, since this is well, 48 hours ago. Um, it's it's impossible. So anyway, so just sorry, let me decipher uh, there, that. There's, Terry. My, there's my opening rant. How's that? <laughs> Fair enough. I just want to make sure that I followed it along properly. So the thought was, and I saw you announce that it's probably not going to happen. So that's still the case today. There will no no longer be a teddy bear picnic. No, that's not the case today. That's okay, the, that's the, what the, I'm trying the, to get to. Yeah, the 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 it looks very likely that something will happen somewhere. Uh, some people want to have a teddy bear picnic and they just don't have the resources. Or the or the facility and uh, et cetera, et cetera, to to pull off a teddy bear picnic. Um, I mean, I I had a call from Mobile uh, and 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 they were interested in doing a teddy bear picnic. I've had a call from so many people and people. Um, I'm disappointed in uh, in the. I, I'm so sorry. You know, I'm so grateful for what how VOCM supported the teddy bear picnic. Uh, and and me, I guess, uh, and, and the city, and prior to that, the the Department of Cultural Affairs with the provincial government and the Arts and Culture Center and Dick Stoker and etc. It's it's received a lot of support over over four decades of of teddy bears picnics. Um, and when I put up my announcement a couple of days ago, saying it didn't look like it was going to happen because I hadn't heard from the uh, you folks, I hadn't heard from the city. Uh, um, I, get, I, I thought, well, we're getting in June. How, how can we possibly do a teddy bear's picnic with with just a few days left in in the school year? And uh, people have just been well. You, if if you if you were on my Facebook, you could see I, I have what well, they call it, but it's so many uh, a whole uh, probably three or four dozen people want to hope uh, join the chat the te- chat on the Teddy Bear Man's Facebook group. Um, it's so, anyway, just, uh, just, uh, the, the, uh, to get cut to the, the main issue is here. It, it, I'm looking very, very seriously at, at doing a Teddy Bear Spectic, maybe in CBS, maybe in, I, I thought it was going to be a Mount Curl, Pearl, but that seems like that's not going to happen. And, uh, except for Sheila O'Leary at the city, I've not heard from anyone there saying, oh, well, you know, we should do something here. This is the pride of, of our province. Where else in the country do does a community, a city, or whatever uh, offer a free to children and their families event that they can go and have fun with, share, have their picnics, and now again probably be able to share them with their neighbors if they're not worried about the COVID stuff anymore. Um, it, and uh, it's it's got to happen. I, you know, I. I uh, so I so so I, I find I'm telling people well I need blah 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 and and they want to know a budget how to what what a budget kind of budget they could they would assume to look I'm I'm just I put the figure out of the hat uh, which is how it all started forty uh, some odd years ago uh, three thousand dollars that you have to pay for face painters because face painters make their main living in the summertime. Uh, we have to get a sound system and I have I already have uh, one offer to. To do sound for 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 it, um, and we have to have you know uh, well, the teddy bear hospital is an essential part of it, and I've also had uh, you know the puppeteer Jake uh, been involved the last couple of years and uh, other entertainers uh, the the uh, the 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 
Judicial Center. Uh, it, 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 the, the RNC horse, you know, and uh, uh, it's just it's 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 much bigger than than i am i it's this and in fact i'm actually uh, talking to people now that look i i would love to see this because it's something to feel really good about and uh, terry riley won't be able to i'm slowing down a little bit you know at uh, 73 years old i'm getting there but uh, i i say say listen i'll always get up and sing a couple of songs but I need someone to supply some uh, financial resources and some some space and all, all the other things that take place to make this teddy bear spectacle for the event that it has been for over four decades. And, and fair enough, your contribution has been absolutely meaningful, Terry. And so if people would oh. like to continue to offer some support, financial and otherwise, we direct them to your Facebook page. Is that the easiest way to do it? Uh, probably easiest now. Uh, the thing is, having said that, uh, I'm, I'm I, and I have a couple of phone calls to return uh, after we speak. Um, people are just they just want to make sure that the daily picture happens. They can't believe that is, and and they're and they're being a little hard on on, on yourselves and the city for not uh, going with it again this year. Well, for on behalf I, of the company, though, my understanding is that we hadn't heard from you, so there was a lot of misunderstanding or miscommunication about what the thoughts there, yeah. were, the hopes yeah. were this year. Well, actually, I, I'm surprised that's... that's that, well, anyway, uh, I mean, yeah, miscommunication can be one of our worst enemies. Uh, but uh, um, it's... Uh, I mean, I'm slowing down, but, uh, I mean, I just did a, a daycare center in CBS here a couple of days ago, and uh, as I said to the woman at the end of it, I said, I guess I can still cut ice, because I guaranteed, I, I offered them a half-hour show, which I used to do an hour or more, and uh, I went 45 minutes, and I said, said, gee, I guess I can still do this, and and the director of the of the daycare center said, oh, yeah, you can still do this, and so, yeah, I mean, I love, I, I, I have loved being the teddy bear man, but the teddy bear man, unfortunately, um, promoted the promoted the, this event as being about the teddy bear man, or, or, or not 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 want, wanting to, but the te- it, it is a family fun, uh, mostly free family fun event for for people, children, and their grown ups and their teddy bears, and they can come out. They don't have to spend a dime, make a few sandwiches, or pack up a banana. Uh, they, they can, and and people can come and enjoy this. You know, well, well Batman Park has been a wonderful location uh, in in most recent years. But uh, you know, Arts Center, Coast Center Lawn, and and actually, there was apart from COVID, there was never a year where it was totally canceled. I always made sure that. I looked for some another place to do it, and we've done it in gymnasiums. We've done it. Uh, in a variety of places, and uh, you know, a couple of communities around the around uh, mm-hmm. around the Avalon have, have, have done similar things. And I, and, you know, I'm, people that are offering, I say, say, well, listen, I don't think you you got the facilities or the resources to do a teddy bear's picnic for say, but you can have the teddy bear man. So I said, I'm telling people, say, say, well, just say, you know, we. Uh, Spend uh, spend an hour with your family with the city man or a half an hour or whatever it may be, um, and I'm very appreciative of the support that the OCM has given me over the years and the city, Chilo O'Leary in particular, Dick Stoker and uh, Charlotte Yevchuk at the Archicultural Center. I mean, I've done it for forty forty some years, and and yes, most years or most recent years, I've done most of the organizing in that, and um, 
but uh, but I but I'm slowing down. <laughs> Terry, I'll tell you what. When things come a little bit closer to uh, getting all the ducks in a row and dates uh, assigned or things you might need, feel free to get back to me, and I'll do what I can to help get the teddy bear picnic back on track for this year. And I really appreciate your time this morning, Terry. Keep me in the loop. I know you will, and and, and God bless all of you. Same to you, sir. Take care. All right, bye-bye. There we go. It's the teddy bear man. Hopefully that gets off the ground. Hey, of course. Let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Lovely down in the woods today, but safer to stay at home. For every bear that ever there was, we'll gather there for certain, because today's the day the teddy bears have their picnic. You're listening to the VOCM Bigland FM Radio Network. Stingray Radio Stations. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Bill, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you? Okay. How you doing? I can't complain too much, uh, I suppose, not much point. Anyway, when I read this morning that Newfoundland Hydro made a half a billion dollars profit last year, my stomach went into, uh, uh, I, I don't know what. I mean, What's why that? would anybody, why would anybody in Newfoundland and Labrador be proud this weekend to be a Canadian? We can't get off the island. Because the, the price of the boat and the ferry is so bloody ridiculous. Air Canada got us where, right where they want us. We got to pay to the hilt and very little, sir. All the other air, airlines gone, only Air Canada left. Got a monopoly on it. Sort of, yeah. Healthcare, our healthcare is gone. Do you know what? I had my wife that emerged a couple of days ago at 78 years old. Got through three eyes okay, but then had to wait like people, like cattle waiting in in area. People there from ten o'clock in the morning only only saw a doctor at seven thirty in the evening. So when I inquired about uh, uh, how long we would have to wait, the lady in emerge said, "There is no way I can tell you it's going to be hours." So after three hours of waiting, we finally left. So, you know, again, I reiterate, uh, reiterate, why would anybody be proud to be a Canadian? This government that we have here and also uh, uh, the federal government has the goal, Patty. I mean, the the carbon taxes and the price of food, nobody can afford anything. And then the goal whack 17 cents on the bloody uh, uh, home heating fuel. I mean, what's going to happen to us, Patty? Why is nobody complaining about this they are lots of people are complaining about it yeah I, I know i know what you're saying there are people complaining yes but i mean if this was happening anywhere else the people would be in the streets rioting what's wrong with us and we're not going to be the seniors are not going to be able to afford to uh, get through this winter coming up you know i i, I don't understand it at all I, i'm very uh, i get upset over it I'm starting to hear about your lengthy stay in the emergency room with your wife, and that's way too common. There's no argument there. I'm just curious about one uh, statement you made to open up the chat, Bill, about Hydro's profit. What was the issue there, just so I know? Well, I, I read this morning they made a half a billion dollar profit in 1922. Yeah, now 
it, it's important to note that predominantly that is not cash. Well, you make me laugh when you say that, Patty. Well, there's a difference between making cash first, and first energy trading all, and the like. All, are they starving to death? Uh, are they not making a profit? They wouldn't be in business. And and this bloody PUB board, I, I swear to my God, they're in cahoots with the government because they just lowered the, the gas uh, down 4.2 cents on Thursday, uh, yesterday, and now they're going to whack it up again. Do they think the people on this island are complete idiots? I mean, and these, these they will do anything. These hydro, uh, nuclear hydro and nuclear power will do anything to justify their means. And we're paying for it. And not only are we paying for it, it's hurting Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, and it's desperately hurting our seniors. My my comment on hydro is, of course, it's Crown Corporation, and they've lost money <laughs> in the past too. So this is not some sort of uh, year over year they're sitting high on the hog because that's simply not the case. Nor does it factor in all kinds of different issues at hydro, specifically Muskrat Falls. So this basically non-cash profit is not going to see any return to the province directly. It's not going to have a lot of cash put aside for controlling my hydro rates when Muskrat is the source of power. So that's the only point I'm making there. Not that it's good, bad, or indifferent. It's just what's actually going on uh but insofar oh. as seniors go look as you know bill i hear these stories and they're heartbreaking stories all day every day i completely understand where you're coming from and the plight of seniors or anybody on fixed income or anybody who's working for say a low-income worker the ability to keep the wolf away from the door and simply pay your bills not talk about the luxuries of life and travel and all the rest of it is just basically being able to pay the bills and put food on the table and fill your prescriptions i know exactly where you're coming from but patty i know it's all right for you and i to get on open line here and talk about this but that does nothing for anybody that's struggling uh, and the price of food and the price of food as everybody on this island knows don't go up by 10 and 20 and 30 cents. It goes up by dollars uh, every week. And everybody knows it does because when I go shopping, I hear people, everybody saying how, how outrageous it is. There, and there's nobody in our government keeping tabs on it. There's nobody in the government with regulators going around checking to see if they're uh, 100 times more, uh, making 100 times more than what uh, they need as an operating profit. I mean, it's crazy. And, and Newfoundland Power there, I mean, they're a private entity. They're, they're, they're making millions, billions. We're paying for it. And every time they go to the PUB board uh, for a rate increase, they try to justify it. God knows what. Uh, you know, they come up with every scheme in the book. And Dennis Brown is one that knows that only too well. Which is why we afford Mr. Brown, the consumer advocate, plenty of time on this show every time there's an application in front of the PUB so he can walk us oh, through it. Oh, I know. And, Patty, uh, before I close, I'd like to get back to the hospital thing. While we were at the hospital, there was a lady brought in from one of the senior homes by ambulance, and she sat right beside me. She was well up in her 80s. And so what did they do after she went? They They took her by ambulance and went to uh, uh, the eMERGE and they put her through triage and then put her out in a waiting room and, and she was, when we left, she was there for hours. She was still there. This should not be. And it upsets me to see our seniors, and I'm one of them. It upsets me 
to see this stuff going on. Our hospital care has gone to rat you know what. I have a friend of mine who... Nobody's doing anything about it. Uh, our ministers can come on there and try to justify. And, and also, I, I heard from good source that the reason why there's a long wait at Western Memorial here on the West Coast and Emerge is because they only have three rooms available to take patients. Now, what do you think of that? Well, I honestly don't know, Bill. I've never set foot in that hospital. I have, I don't. I can't even picture in my mind's eye what it looks like, how many rooms there would be, what the complement of staff is. So I'll admit ignorance on that front. I just don't know. And if you can, if you tell me there's only three rooms, I believe you. That came to me. That came from a nurse. Okay. Well, they they know. But anyway, in closing, I'd like to say, you know, it's time when the next election comes for the people of this province to really come to grips and get rid of this liberal government, uh, provincially and federally. And I'm serious when I say that. And anybody with any guts at all knows that we can't go on like this. Something has to change. This carbon tax, this is a bunch of BS that's killing us. It does nothing for the environment. And you know that, and I know that. People will vote with their conscience however they see fit, as is their civic right. Yes, I agree. I hope your wife is doing well, Bill, and I appreciate your time. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's uh, go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're talking HST once again. Bernice is in the queue. Her son has been in the penitentiary for just about a year, still awaiting trial. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Bernice, you're on the air. Hi. Hi there. Uh, I'm, ca- I'm calling this morning to try to find out. Well, can- i got to turn my radio down. Okay. I'm trying to find out what the limitations are of how long you had to be incarcerated and not being charged in court. So, your son... Is has not my been charged, son, but my son, my son was arrested in July uh, last year, July twenty seventh. He was uh, taken into custody. Uh, he he wasn't given a statement or anything for him to do a statement or anything. Uh, four days later, when I found out about it, uh, they already hadn't sent to the penitentiary in St. John's. Uh, he was in Marystown detachment at the, time, the first time. So since then, he's after having five lawyers. Neither one of them has worked too much. I after being at a couple of bail hearings, which I didn't see was uh, the right way things should have been brought out. Uh. While he was in the penitentiary, he was transferred out to Bishop Falls. Uh, from Bishop Falls, he got transferred out to Stephenville. Now, he hasn't even had a trial yet. And he's on reprimand. Like, what kind of a justice system have we got? So I would imagine some of the complications here, Bernice, is that he's gone through so many lawyers, which kind of restarts the process. There's something called a Jordan ruling in this country that says uh, you have to be seen in court 
18 months after charges are laid for if you're talking about the province's main entry port or the court system and 30 months after charges are laid if it's in front of superior court so at one year it feels like an awful long time to be sitting behind bars without having been convicted for anything Inside Her Majesty's Penitentiary, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 60% of the folks who are in that pen are, have not seen a judge, have not had their case heard. So that's the basics. Is it, it's 18 months before they have to either apply the Jordan ruling or there has to be a trial. Well, his trial is supposed to, uh, uh, as of we know it so far, that uh, he would be looking at uh, February 2025 before uh, he goes to trial. My God, you know, that's ridiculous. It is. Well, when you have a shortage of judges, especially in federal courts, uh, I don't know if I should ask, is your son charged with a violent crime? Uh, my son was railroaded. To be honest with you. And so when he you had... I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. He was railroaded. His wife was having an affair, and he found out about it. And at the time, he was on coke. He was addicted. Uh, she set him up outside of where they even lived to and got her son to call the RCMP for to have my son charged. Uh, nobody knows the after effects that this is after heaven and some of us. My son is in there. I don't believe not one word that she's after saying because she's after lying before. And we just got to stand by and watch him waste away his time behind bars. Bernice, what happened at the bail hearings? He was simply denied bail. Simple as that. Uh, he got. He had a bail hearing, and he he got out, and he was allowed to talk to his son, one of his sons, and uh, his mother turned around and changed it all around because he was allowed to talk to him. He wasn't breaking his probation, but his mother changed it around and said that the reason why he was talking to him was to get back at her. So, was so with that, he was out on bail. So they turned around and they came and they arrested him again. He was out for 12 days. So, and the accusation, or the allegation is, is that he breached the conditions of his release. Well, uh, they, he, he didn't break the uh, condition of his release because... His release was that he'd stay in the house all day and all night. He wasn't allowed outside the door. You wouldn't do that to a pet that's in the shelter. He, When he was released, they told him that he was released. He wasn't allowed outside the door no matter what. And he called his son to talk to him because he wasn't talking to him in a while. And the mother stepped in and she called their CMP and said that uh, it was all about her. It wasn't about her son. But my son is being railroaded. I'm sick of watching this going on. He's in there and uh, it's all true lies. 
immoralized. Well, I don't know, of course. I don't know what's going on in these particular circumstances, but obviously the courts believe that there was some sort of breach of the conditions of his release, so I, I'm not sure what else I can say about that because I have no earthly idea exactly what we're talking about. And But, but regardless of his guilt or innocence, he should need he should be in front of a judge well before 2025. I think that's what you said, February of 2025. Well, but see, Patty, what I can't understand is that I have to go into their CMP. Uh, there's charges could be laid against people, and they won't do it because he says their hands are tied because he's in jail. Mm-hmm. Well, but when somebody goes uh, and steals $600 belonging to you, uh, no, I think somebody should be charged. Uh, okay, and I'm, I'm not really sure what the $600 having been stolen really means or what you're referring to, but I hope that, uh, guilty or innocent, I hope it gets his day in court uh, sooner than later because, of course, it's tough not only on him, but it would be obviously tough on the family. Uh, I appreciate your time, Bernice. I wish you good luck. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Yeah, sometimes, like, uh, I don't know exactly what's going on in some of those circumstances, so it's hard to know how to react or what to say or whatever the case may be. Let's check in on the Twitter before we get to the news. We're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Follow us there. Comment like many people do throughout the course of the program. Uh, and fair ball. Our email address is openlinefvocm.com. Well, let's take a break on time for the 1130 News. When we come back, everyone in the queue, you stay right there. Don't go away. Bye-bye. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Good morning, Susan Guiney. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. How about you this morning? Not bad. Good. Yeah. <clears throat> so I suppose you heard about Bill being in the hospital a few times. Yes, I have. I hope he's doing okay. What's the status update? Uh, he's doing really good, and the doctor told me um, day before yesterday that he, as far as he can tell, he's cancer-free. Good news. I'm really pleased to hear that. Yeah, so now it's time for Billy to get on. the. He's uh, going to be at the market tomorrow, <clears throat> the farmer's market tomorrow, but he's not he's not selling any carvings or anything. He's going out there to promote. Uh, he's booked that uh, they're going to be starting a book <clears throat> um, of all the stories that he collected from his walk 2,000 years ago. The name of the book is going to be Push, and he's going to keep collecting stories from people. He'll have little forms out there that he, they can take with the information, and they can email him. It can be anonymous. It can be anything. But... We just thought it was nice to get other people's stories out there, and we had permission from the people we talked to about publishing these stories. What kind of stories are we talking about? uh, Mental health stories, you know. uh, uh, Sometimes they can be like a a person, how they deal with um, their anxieties and things like that. Like maybe they like to read or there's a certain story or poem or quote or song lyrics, whatever helps them get through. It can be anything that you feel like I, I listen to music when I'm stressing. Uh, There's lots of people read, lots of people paint, lots of people do different things. It's just something that gets you through because I, I think we still need to keep talking about mental health and, um, not being afraid to come forward and 
He's going to be collecting stories for the month of July to comply into a book. Uh, it's kind of like the format of the Alcoholics Anonymous book, only these stories will be about people's personal struggles or triumphs with mental illness and health. Real stories from real people. So, um, and, and that's, but now, coming up after this, he's hopefully walking around uh, Labor Day weekend, depending on recovery. So that that's what it says on this form here now, but that could be a little bit different. We we are we will advertise when he is going to be walking around the loop collecting stories. He's gonna be pushing a stroller. That's why we came up with the name push. And uh it's just to help people um you know, deal with not deal with it, but you know, show that we're there to to support them and Keep this conversation going because it's one that should be talked about forever. Absolutely. We try to keep it going on this show, that's for sure. Yes, yeah, definitely. Now, uh, I was going to say I heard the, the gentleman and his long stay at the emergency. Uh, when Bill went back to emergency after his uh, ordeal, or after he, he actually forgot about his prostate cancer after the second surgery because it was so traumatic. It was it was an emergency surgery. We were in the waiting room seven hours. He didn't. He didn't complain. He didn't. He didn't get upset. He just said, "This is it. There's people here worse than us." It's just if you complain in the hospital, it's not going to get you further ahead. But when they saw how bad he was, it was emergency surgery. They put him up for emergency surgery. But my and mine and Bill's. The uh, trip to the hospital, and then both of us ended up back in Emerge. I have to say thank you to the health science units, the emergency emergency departments, the floors that Bill was on, uh, the nurses that were attending to Bill's every care, and then down at the St. Clair's, the nurses and the staff down there that attended to me, like. I woke up in recovery, and it's not very often I wake up and I'm alert to what's going on. That recovery room is one of the busiest places I've ever seen, and it was handled with so much care and grace, all the nurses going around, making sure everybody was okay. It was so busy there. It was just hard to believe that it worked so well. Well, I'm glad it worked like that, and I'm glad to hear Bill is doing well and will be at the farmer's market tomorrow. So, folks, feel free to go see Bill Guiney. Terrific people are Susan and Bill. I look forward to seeing some of the stories collected in his book. Anything else quickly, Susan, before I say goodbye? No, that's it, Patty. Thank you very much uh, for for listening to us. A big shout-out to Dr. Harvey and my doctors uh, that took care of me, and uh, thank you for always promoting us and talking to us. Happy happy to do it. Uh, stay in touch, Susan. We will, so. All right. Take care. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, uh, let's go to line number three. Joe, you're on the air. Hi, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Uh, yes, I'd like to talk about the Newfoundland and, and Labrador justice system when it comes to family court. 
Um, I think that fathers have very little rights to their own kids when it comes to family court. And, and I really think that something should be done. I think, I think this is 2023. I think time should change, that, that fathers should get noticed, you know, for being there for their kids and wanting to be a part of their kids' lives. Uh, since my kid is 18 months old, I've been fighting in court back and forth. Um, she has spent thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, which I refuse to do because I'd sooner put that towards an education fund. Seems we're there in court three, four times a year because she's a bitter mother. Um, I, I feel a lot of times that uh, she get her lawyer, she tells fabricated lies to her lawyer, and it gets heard and believed by the justice system. When I have emails to prove uh, what I'm saying is true, and they don't even want to take the time to go over or look at my emails, basically just shoot them away, just saying that, I ain't got time for this. We only got certain times for certain matters. But when it when it concerns my my son's medication because he has ADHD, um, she's taken him out of school. Uh, I've never I didn't see him Father's Day. I didn't see him on his birthday. I didn't get to talk to him on Easter. I have joint custody, fifty fifty decision making, and there's no repercussions for the mother. Uh, all because. Uh, on some of my visits uh, where my son has severe ADHD. So I'm at the arcade, for example, with my child, and he's having fun. So, you know, it's a little harder for him to break free. So he's like, please, 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 I want to, you know, that's kind of the way an ADHD kid responds. So it's like, as being a father, you you try to take the lumps to say, okay, five more minutes, five more minutes, and you're trying to get him out the door. But then as soon as I get back, she's there with her notepad writing it down. Oh, you're 10 minutes late. You're 15 minutes late. Uh, I work rotation work, or I did all winter long, um, where I was gone, and I'd be back for 12 days. I didn't see him for 24 days of the month. And seeing him one day in, 20, in 24 days, um, I'm a bad parent, basically, because I was a half hour late because my child was having fun. And then in court, then, uh, the judges, oh, that's not good. That's not good. What's not good about a half hour late because he was having fun? I could see bringing him back 4 o'clock in the day. I could see if it was like bringing him back 8 o'clock at night and he had to get up for school. Um, And when I mentioned that I'd like to be part of my son's behavior therapy uh, meetings and what have you. And I want to be a part of it because I want to learn more. Uh, everything got shooed away from me. Nothing nothing got resolved as far as I'm concerned in my last court date. And because she had a lawyer and, and, and was told fabricated lies to her lawyer that stood up in front of the judge because I didn't have one because I represented myself, um, therefore her lies is believed. And, and I was a nothing in the court. nothing got resolved in my eyes as far as I'm concerned if I have court order for visits and she's denying me of debt uh, and I have you know 50-50 decision making and joint custody as far as I'm concerned she should have been told to make sure that I'm aware of when his appointments are any change of his medication especially when she took him out of school and nothing got resolved 
to the point that I had to speak up and say, I'm going on open line because this is unjust. And, and I, I encourage all fathers to speak up for themselves because you, you have one life to raise your kids. And why waste it on a bitter mother that's sour and just trying to keep your kid from you? Um, I, I encourage all fathers to speak up and try to put an end to this because I think it's a right for, for kids to know their fathers as well, especially loving fathers that put in extra time and effort and work hard and, and base everything around their kids because they love them so much to be turned away in court all because they're biased because of the mother. And I, I would like to encourage other fathers in the province to stand up and, and come united and try to change this for for single fathers that's in the same situation that I'm in. And they can do it, and I'm sorry that you're going through this. Uh, I thank my lucky stars that I haven't had to deal with an issue like this inside my own, own family unit, but, uh, Joe, I wish you well. Hopefully things turn out for the better for the relationship between you and your boy. I really thank you for your time and to be heard today. Thank you very much, Patty. Good luck, Joe. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, final break of the morning and the week. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's get through a few before we run out of time. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to Jordan Brown. He's the NDP member for Lab West. Jordan, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me on again. No problem. Yeah, so I just wanted to, you know, the discussion around, you know, cost of living and stuff like that is, you know, happening, I said, since uh, the last couple of years now, especially in the province. So back in March, uh, myself and my colleague Jim Din and Leela Evans, we put a, a talk about, you know, there is something that government could have done back in March that actually would have been made an impact on the lives of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians every single day, every single body in the province. And that was to remove the HST Again, because it was, it, was, it was put back on in 2015, to take it back off again, the provincial portion of the HST, off home heating fuels and residential electricity. So that, that was back last in March. We, we, we put out a press release saying, you know, this is what we can do. We, we did it before. Why can't we do it again to help people? And now we're seeing, you know, the, the minister stand up and saying, oh, there's nothing we can do with the increasing costs. There's nothing, you know, we wrote, we wrote a letter to the, uh, to the federal government, you know, because, you know, we shouldn't be taxing home heating in any form, you know, either electrical or even with fuels. And they said nothing to do. But there is something they can do. They put the HST back on home heating fuels in 2015, and they refused to take it off, even to the state. That's an 8% savings if they removed it from home heating fuels and removed it from uh, residential electricity. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been talking about it ever since, I think. Oh, yeah, everyone has. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I've, I put that directly to Minister Parsons this morning. And I suppose next opportunity we get to speak with Minister Cody, we'll do the exact same thing. Exactly, because it's something they could actually do right now. They could have did it back in March. They could do it right now and, and remove the HST. We shouldn't be taxing um, heating your home. It's something that, you know, we, we can't be at. Uh, it's no different than, you know, taxing, you know, the taxing of food and, and taxing of other, uh, you know, necessities. Uh, but we, we, we do it and we, we'd stop doing it in, in, you know, before 2015. But in that infamous, you know, budget, uh, they put it back on. And, and instead of, you know, you know, revisiting it and saying, you know, well, the cost of living, everything like that, because that's what they're talking about. They're saying, oh, the cost of living, everything like that. There's a lever they can pull and they choose not to. And the same with residential electricity. And both are going to go up tomorrow. Like, you know, residential electricity is going to go up tomorrow. And same with, uh, you know, home heating fuel. Well, they can do it because they were able to cut the provincial gas tax in half. And so if they can do that, then they can do whatever they want with the uh, tax implications. And 
We're going to have more and more conversations specifically about home heating fuels and taxes, whether it be with carbon, HST, and otherwise, because if we had a problem last winter, which we did, then we're going to have bigger problems in the future, and that is easily foreseeable, and we're going to have to get down to the brass tacks. Uh, Jordan, I know that that's all you wanted to talk about this morning. I'm going to try to squeeze a few more on before we run out of time. Yeah, absolutely. Just one quick, quick thing you want to mention. Um, also with the announcement today or yesterday about the um, the conversion from oil to electricity, they talked about how it's going to help every uh, Newfoundland and Labradorian. There is an exception. Anyone who lives in a rural remote place that's powered by a diesel power plant cannot apply for that program. And those people are the ones who pay the most for home heating fuel right now. So the ones that actually are hurting the most when it comes to home heating fuel prices, like rural and remote communities, cannot apply for that program because their grid does not allow them to have electrical heat. Uh, electrical heat. So those, uh, there is a big if in that program, and the government has not done a single thing to help those who actually have paid the most for home heating fuels. I appreciate the time, Jordan. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. It's Jordan Brown, NDP member for Lab uh, West. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Courtney Bartlett. You're on the air. Hi. Um, I'm here to just talk about the 11th annual Tickle Swim for Mental Health. Our Tickle Swim is taking part uh, this year, August 26th. Swimmers swim 5K, Portugal Cove, St. Philip, the Belle Island, and raise funds for the Canadian Mental Health Association, Newfoundland. The Tickle Swim is both a physical and a mental challenge. We are still taking swimmers, kayakers with level one certification and volunteers. There is a mini tickle swim at Topsail Beach for anyone under the age of 16, which will take place on September the 9th. If anybody's interested in the tickle swim, you can certainly find out more information at the ticklesswim.ca. Our first committee fundraiser is this evening at the Woodstock Public House here in Paradise. We are hosting a comedy show with great food and laughs. We have Liam Small, Brian Alward, Bree Parsons, and Sarah Walsh. Tickets are being sold online. You can find them on Eventbrite, or there is an event on Facebook with a link to purchase tickets. Just go to the Canadian Mental Health Association Newfoundland Chapter uh, Facebook page, and the doors open at 7 with the show starting around 8. And it should be a great time and a great event for everybody to come out and support. I've seen Brian Edwards act. Uh, He's terrific. And so I'm a big fan of the Tickle Swim ever since its uh, origin or its inception. Uh, Sheila O'Leary, driving force behind it. You're the co-chair of the swim, right, Courtney? Yes, that is correct. Well, listen, good luck with it tonight. And when we get closer to the date, we'll certainly welcome a more of a conversation about the Tickle Swim, fundraising for the Canadian Mental Health Association and all the different tentacles from it. Good luck tonight. Certainly appreciate that. Thank you for your time. My pleasure, Courtney. Good luck. You too. That's Bye-bye. Courtney Barlow. She's Tickle Swim co-chair. Let's go to line number two, Teresita McCarthy. You're on the air. Hi. Uh, how are you, Patty? Doing fine this morning. You? Uh, wonderful, thanks. So I'm calling on behalf of the Number Two Mind Tour and Museum on Beautiful Bell Island. I'm the executive director here. We have an event tonight. It's called the Candlelight Vigil. It starts at 7 p.m. here, here at the Museum and Mind Tour. And uh, this is a time when we remember the 109 people who died in the mines during the mining era. So then on July 28th, we've got Remember Our Miners Day, and that's the bouncy castle and the music and all of the fun that comes with that. Then we have the opening of the Harry Hibbs exhibit on July 30th at 2 p.m. And then we have Christmas in the Mines on August the 15th at 12 noon to 4. And so we're busy, 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 busy. And uh, your listeners can uh, find out all about us on our website, which is Bell Island Mine Tour. 
and thank you for enabling me to do this. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the mind chart, to be honest with you. The Harry Hibbs issue, let's get Harry Hibbs on the Canadian Walk of Fame while, yes, we're, while we're at it. And uh, it's always a good adventure to make your way over to Belle Island, certainly with the mind tour and the candlelight vigil. How, how, what was the number of uh, people lost in the mines? There were 109. 109. All worthwhile. I hate to cut it short, but I'm going to try to get on one more before we run out of time. But good luck, Teresita. You're always welcome on the show. Thank you so much, Patty. You have yourself a great day. The very same to you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. And let's do exactly that and go to line number three. Trudy, you're on the air. Hi, good afternoon. How are you? Doing grand. How about you? Good, good. Just uh, want to talk about a Aboriginal, Indigenous, Canadian, Canada flag. Cannot find one here in Newfoundland. I've called, uh, I'm in the Springdale area. I've checked all the stores up here and then I've called Grand Falls, Corner Brook, St. John, and can't seem to find one. But I did get one yesterday from Amazon. I ordered it from Amazon. So There's one in my neighborhood. For folks who don't know what it is, it very much looks like the Canadian flag, except with stylized indigenous art, which and both the red banners on the side and inside the maple leaf itself. It's actually quite attractive. Yes, and I'm glad I got mine yesterday from Amazon to display tomorrow. I'm a bit surprised that there's none available in any sort of retail outlet here. Um, I wonder why that would be. Hmm. Anyway, I, sure. I guess the person that I see flying, it also got theirs through Amazon then. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Probably. Yeah, I just wanted to point that out. Well, I'm glad you did, and hopefully you enjoyed this uh, long weekend. I know this is, is Indigenous People's Month as well, so thanks for making time. I'm glad you got your flag on time. Hopefully they have some out for next year. Fair enough. I mean, there's a market there, and that's what drives those uh, business decisions. So you were one who was willing to buy. I bet you're not the only one. Yeah, for sure. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Trudy. Bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, uh, so here we go. We are indeed off on Monday here. We're taking the Canada Day stat. And certainly important, you know, we use November 11th as a day to offer the the reflection of lest we forget, I think the same thing could be associated with Memorial Day here. There has been encouraging turnout at Memorial Day events and Armistice Day events over the years. Let's hope that that continues. And for those who are going to move on in the afternoon and celebrate Canada Day, we hope you do it in a fun, safe fashion with your family and friends. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Tuesday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. We'll talk on Tuesday. Bye-bye.